Good morning, planet Earth. Good morning to the sky pilots. Good morning to the sky pilots and the sky pirates and the travelers in the air. Good morning to the rocket ship captains. Good morning to your space crew. Are you prepared for battle, Captain Space? You might be. Because it's September the 15th, 2022, Boblimtok. And it's almost 4 a.m. here in Utah. But if you're listening on WRMI, listening on 5850 kHz, WRMI, Miami Okeechobee, it's 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. It's September the 16th, 2022, Boblimtok. It means it's also the future. The brutal future. You live like a pig. Smelling your own poop. It's the brutal future. You are Robert Duvall. They give you a pill to swallow. They call it joy. That was your old wife's name, her stripper name, Joy. Yes, indeed, as long as we can afford to, and I'll get into that in a second, we're going to try to do once a week on WRMI. We have to pay for it. We don't have any funders for it. Do I get donations? Of course I do. Are they enough to pay um, for four shows a month? No, not currently. And uh, that, you know, brings me into my first topic, which is stuff going on in my life. Here's the deal. Um, in the last decade, I have done a lot of contracting as a software engineer. Prior to getting to Utah, I did a couple stints at Microsoft. Um, and I had no problem talking about that or the company. I don't really want to get into my feelings about Microsoft because if you're a listener, you already know I think they suck. However, if you want to work as a software engineer in the United States of Boblimptok, um, as I have the last two decades, then you end up working with a lot of Microsoft technology. Whether you like it or not, whether you agree with it or not, they achieved technology capture when I was a kid. And, you know, yeah, you got people using Apple devices and you have folks in the Linux world and, and certainly things are changing. Um, but currently, if you go to buy a PC at the store, you know, at any ordinary store that poor people go to like me, it isn't 50-50. Half of them are Linux, half of them are Microsoft. It's more or less you can buy the, the Microsoft computer or you can buy the Apple computer or maybe you can buy the Google Chrome. But for the most part, the world of technology, business technology, is still very much captured by Microsoft. And I'm not a big fan of Apple or Google either. So in terms of the oligopoly, of providing computers, they pretty much all suck. Um, that's where you're at. That's where I'm at about all this stuff. I put my resume 
on the market in June. A week later, I got a job. And a couple weeks after that, I was getting paid. And I gotta say, you know, the reason why I took the job is the same reason why a lot of people that I know will take a job these days. And that is, it's a job, it's money. You don't really know what will happen. You might not work out, which means you might get fired, or the job might not work out, which means you might look for a different job. As far as quiet quitting goes, if that's a thing, and frankly, it seems a lot like the decay of life in the Soviet Union in the 70s. As far as quiet quitting goes, I've never been good at that. Um, quiet quitting has a different name, and that's just time serving. People who go to their job and they check in and then they check out. They don't do much, but they do enough to not get fired under normal circumstances. And perhaps during the layoff times, they manage to weasel themselves into some position that makes them critical. Who knows? But quiet quitting is not a new phenomenon. It's just a derogatory name because a lot of people, especially boomers at this point, don't want to recognize the possibility that is right in front of them if they can see it. And that 2020 and the last couple years of the pandemic and the race war nonsense and all the gender dysphoria cultural crap that the last couple years only made worse and is only making worse. And that is a lot of people are burnt out and crazy, okay? Quiet quitting is a great way to pretend that it's something else. It's like the, the dummy that talks about the <laughs> talks about the beetles uh, killing the trees. The beetles are coming to California and killing the trees, Dan. N no, buddy, the trees are dying. Their ability to fight off the beetles isn't working. Okay, you're focused on the beetles. You don't understand that it's something else. Way too focused on the beetles. So I don't think quiet quitting's a thing, but if it were a thing, it's not my thing. It never was. When I interviewed for my job at Harborview back in 2010, one of the things the hiring manager said was, Dan, whatever else, you might not get rich, but you'll always have a job. And I remember telling him, I didn't keep this in my head. This was not the part that remained silent. I remember telling him, and I was pretty certain it would nuke me for the interview. I remember saying that that's the least attractive thing about the job, you know, that I'll, I'll never lose it. I, I kind of think there should be consequences. Um, he laughed and he smiled and I got the job, but I don't think he understood what I said. Um, I, I've never been good at it. This job, the, the one I got was good money, really good money, obscenely good money from my perspective. And it was weird that I got it so quickly. Um, it was a good company. I don't want to go into specifics because their business is their business. The people were really professional. And it might have worked out for a while. Like something happened about a month ago. About a month ago, I had a kind of health event. Um, I, that's all I can call it, a health event, something involving my medical condition my right leg basically stopped working mostly. Like it, I still had feeling in it. I could still hobble around if I locked up my knee, but my right leg could carry no weight. It was bad enough that one day, the day I decided to go to the hospital, I was walking 
the Sharpay Boomer, the Boomer, and the little one Shaggy Braggy. I was walking Braggy, Shaggy, and Boomer, and Boomer pulled on me, and I fell over. Just fell over like a house of cards. Um, my neighbor asked if I was okay later on, and, uh, you know, here I am today. The only evidence of the whole thing is the giant scab that's still healing on my right knee because on my way to the hospital that day, I took a header into the sidewalk with my knee and it got pretty bloody. But a few days after the hospital, it all got better. And what did they tell me in the hospital? Nothing. I had a bunch of tests, all the COVID tests, the monkey herpes. I had the MRI for an hour, actually more than an hour. I had two MRI sessions and one brain scan. I had a bunch of tests. My blood pressure was elevated, but as you might may or may not know, thinking you're going paralyzed or perhaps dying, because that was the thought in my head, you know, my sister had died 10 years earlier, and I thought, okay, maybe this is cancer. But for all the tests and all the poking, and believe me, in the ER, it's funny that ER nurse told me, you know, if I have to find a vein more than three times, I have to call another nurse. But haha, <laughs> yeah, they didn't have another nurse. Um, so I ended up with a bunch of jabs in me. I ended up with an IV bag connector that never got used. And I had a lot of tests. And a couple days after I got out of the hospital, really the, d the day after, pretty much, my leg started getting better. So when I call the health event, I don't know what else to call it. Like, what do you call it? It's a health event, it's something involving my health, but it's a mystery. Now, they did refer me to a neurologist, and I wanted to see a neurophlebotomist. I would have seen an existential podiatrist, or maybe a wizard psychiatrist. If you can imagine it. Woulda, coulda, shoulda, baby. Woulda, coulda, shoulda. One of the things that happened as a result of the health event and the fact that I had some bad memories about my sister 10 years ago is I got really depressed. And I'm still managing it. If you're a listener, you know that I suffer from episodic acute depression, which is a nice way of saying that during most of my life, this type of depression would hit every five, maybe eight years. Um, since my divorce, and really, especially since 2020, I've kind of managed waves of this. You know, one wave, and then I have some peace for a few months, and then another wave. The waves don't last that long. So I, I do have ways of managing it now that I didn't have 20, 30 years ago. But when they hit, they're bad. And this one was pretty bad. And in this case, it manifested as a general disgust for humanity, which included myself, I'm always fair that way, and, and usually judge myself a little bit, maybe a lot worse than humanity in general. It, it, it results in a lot of that, a lot of that um, misanthrope stuff. Um, a lot of the just general sense of, I, I just don't care. I don't care. I don't care. If you were to come up to me and say, Dan, 
Who are you voting for this year? Well, if I was in a good mood, I'd say I don't care. But in a crappy mood, I would look at you and I'd want to punch you and then I would say I don't care. And then I'd walk away. I, I, I am good at keeping, I believe at this point, my negative crap to myself. I have a door I can close. I have a place I can go. That's a luxury. I have a way of isolating my depression, but when I'm around people, when I'm depressed, especially in the summertime, as weird as it sounds, for me, my depressions are always worse when it's really bright and sunny out and everyone's so frickin' happy. <sighs> Summer's the worst for me um, when it comes to depression. So I got hit by a bad wave and it was bad enough for a couple weeks, I got almost nothing done. And like I said, I can't do quiet quitting. I can't do that. I've never been able to just be a time server. I understand if I had kids, and I don't, and if I had a wife or girlfriend, which I don't, I might have incentives for, for wanting to make a bad situation work. But the fact is, this was a good job with good pay for a decent enough company with a pretty good team doing something, doing work I had no real interest in. And that's been true the last 10 years. Most of the stuff out there is healthcare, ugh, financial, ugh, national security state, spy on your neighbor, triple ugh. That's a lot of the data mining, data warehousing, software work out there in terms of industries. You've got people involved in property pyramid schemes, you got people cheating each other via the healthcare schemes. You got the national security state having people turn in their neighbors in the most cowardly way possible vis-a-vis -vis their social networking tools. You have a lot of really wretched options for good pay. Pretty good pay on the Death Star. Um, let's not get around that. Really good pay. And if I was able to be simply motivated by that, which I'm not, and I wish I were, especially at times like this, it would not be an issue. And, and frankly, if I hadn't have gotten depressed like I did a few weeks ago, it wouldn't be an issue. But for me, I can't just sit around and take a paycheck. And they brought me on the team to help them. And I don't see how me not being able to work helps them. So I ended up resigning from the job because I just didn't know when the depression would break. My legs started getting better, but my brain did not. And... Um, Am I still as depressed today as I, as I was a week ago? No, it's getting better. Like I said, it comes in waves. And if I could do a job where randomly I could take off a month, that would be great. But we don't live in that world. And I just can't go and pretend, you know, especially given that going to work in this situation was working from home. And you'd say, Dan, why would you have to quit that job? It's a work from home job. And I say to you, motherfucker, if you have kids, if you have a wife or a girlfriend, I get it. But I can't just check in and take a check. I know for the Death Star, I know for the too big to fail economy, that's insane. And it's economically suicidal, but it's my choice. Just like you make the choices you make. You participate in this game as much as you want to. And if you want to believe it's going to last your whole lifetime and you're a young person, God bless, believe that. But I have no faith in it. I can testify that I have faith in Jesus. I have zero faith in this system right now. Not just the United States government, because frankly, it's too easy of a straw man 
to tip over just like Boomer and me that day. No, it's not just about the government. It's about the whole way we interact with each other. It is broken. It has no future. It might last another 10 years. It might last another 10 minutes. And a lot of you crazy people, if the government were to collapse and the U.S. dollar did vaporize, a lot of crazy people, maybe not my listeners, would simply want to recreate it the next day. U.S. dollar part two. U.S. government part whatever. I mean, after the Civil War, I think we'd be on part three. The Third Republic. Yeah, that's my opinion. Although technically it would be the Fourth Republic. Because I think we had a Republic of Liberty prior to the Constitution that would have worked a lot better than all the crap since then. And I'll let Native Americans and African Americans and others speak for themselves. But we had, a, we had a chance at a free country. And then a bunch of people took it over. And at first it seemed to work for the right people, right? And I've talked about that. I don't want to talk about the Constitution, and I really don't want to talk about your your convention of the states BS. It is too late in the game. When I look at the system, the whole system, the entire economic, political, social system, I see tension, I see cracks, and the pandemic, whatever it was, and I think it was military psychological warfare, but whatever it was, it did irreparable damage to whatever was left of that thing. So what we're looking at now is a system on life support. That's what we're looking at. And I can't have faith in that. I can have faith in God and I can have faith that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, but I have zero faith in your social security, in your your legal system, and, and less than zero faith, a negative faith, an almost abysmal negative faith in your national security, all of it. It's all crap. And it's all going down. And right up to the last minute, right up to the last second, they'll tell you they can keep the lights on. It's Baghdad Bob time. Baghdad Bob time. You're going to have Powell at the Fed telling you, you know, it's bad, but it'll be okay. You've got Biden telling you there's no inflation okay. And then you got the Ukraine. In 2019, when I was talking about the near future, I used a phrase, and I don't claim total originality, called the great discontinuity. And in my notes, and if you're listening on the radio to get to my notes, you just go to planetarystatusreport.com slash WRMI. That's planetarystatusreport.com slash WRMI. And there you'll find the show notes if you pick the right date. And I'm not going to teach you how to use a calendar. I'm sorry. That's not a radio skill I'm teaching right now. Um, but if you go to the notes, I have a link 
to that podcast. And if you simply go to my podcast from my website and you search the page for Great Discontinuity, you'll find that November 2019 podcast. And what I do in the podcast is I talk about the fact that A, in 2019, I'd pulled the trigger. We're going to start slipping. Things are going to start rapidly falling apart. And the government will do everything it can, and, and so far they have, to cover that up. It's kind of like the, the unions on strike, the, the trucker rebellion. Hey, a food processing plant just exploded. A lot of this stuff might be true. A lot of it might be BS or a combo plate. A lot of it, if it was translated to Russian and then put into a time machine and sent back to Pravda in 1983, a lot of it would sound like Soviet propaganda. Comrades, we got no progno cookies because another one of our food plants was destroyed by the capitalists. So maybe the train union strike is real, or maybe it's just another way to cover up what's going on. But in 2019, I said, listen, I avoided telling people it's going to be now for several years. In 2015-16, I told people it was about five years away. Guess what? It ended up being about five years away. And in 2019, I said, listen, it's going to start happening. There are too many indications. And it wasn't just the repo market in terms of banking and finance. That wasn't the only red flag. There were a lot of red flags in 2019, if you knew what you were looking at. And if you could put down your smart device. Yeah, if you could put down your smart device. But a lot of people can't. So their brain is filled with noise, their, their, their brain, their consciousness is filled with the buzzing of bees, you know. And frankly, probably some demons, too. Um, oh, Dan, you sound crazy when you talk like that. You haven't even heard crazy, brothers and sisters. So when I say I don't have faith in the system, it's because... For one, I drew a line in the sand in 2019, at least as far as my own coping abilities, my own Kubler-Ross stages of grieving, and I accepted that whatever we called normal at that point, whatever was left of it, and frankly, after 9-11, a lot of things that I thought were normal um, disappeared, uh, were gone. It was a new, a new normal, a new world, and not a particularly good one, not when I'm like I'd say we should be proud of. You know, whatever the war on terror was, and I think it was a lot of lies, a lot of BS, but whatever it is and was, it did a lot of destruction. It harmed a lot of people. Like if you take the total casualties of 9-11 and you compare them to all the men, women, and children that have been killed in our wars since then, if you compare it to all of the birth defects and cancers that are going to result from all that spooled, depleted uranium spread out over the Persian Gulf and Afghanistan, if you compare it to all that, the number that represents our response to 9-11 dwarfs those casualties of 9-11 by a factor of a hundred at least, maybe a thousand. So I'm not discounting the fact that it was terrible and a lot of people died. Um, 
you know, it, it was terrible. And, and frankly, probably people were killed. I don't know how they were killed. I don't know if they were all killed in the buildings as they were collapsed, and I, I don't know if they were killed someplace else. So I, I do think people died. But in terms of the numbers of other people we killed to seek revenge, it's grotesque. There is no comparison. It's not like sending Blackjack Pershing into Mexico in 1915 because somebody named Pancho Villa was robbing, robbing and killing in Texas. It wasn't like that. We didn't at least try to do something called proportional response. No. We did overwhelming destruction, which means that if 9-11 was a lie, and I think it was mostly lies, it means that our country is guilty of a lot of war crimes. In a world, if you believe legal systems work, and I don't, a lot of war crimes were committed if it was a lie. None of it was righteous. There is nothing righteous about occupying a country and stealing its oil. I'm sorry. If you want to get all Bismarck and Realpolitik and you know summon your internal Kissinger, fine. You go live that empty, demonic life. You have a job, you can quiet quit, you can do your cocaine, and you can watch your smart device, and you do not have to care. Until you do. You see, the great thing about being alive right now, even if nobody listens to my podcast, and that's kind of predictable uh, in a lot of ways, the great thing about being alive is seeing the expressions on people's fucking faces. Because... Most of the people I know haven't remotely gone through their stages of grieving. Most of the people I know are still coming up with bargaining strategies and arguments and how everything's going to be like 2019 again. Trump won the election. He's got an army in the Grand Canyon. Q told me so. I watched Fox News. They said if the Republicans take back the Congress and the Senate, yeah... I remember Contract with America, bros and sisters. I was there in the 90s when that Newt Gingrich guy promised us, if you give us the Congress and the Senate, we're going to impeach and remove Clinton. And they kind of almost did that. We're going to balance the budget. And they only did that because they didn't agree with each other. Um, but for the most part, all those promises were for naught. They went nowhere. Divided government if you believe that that's what was going on. Divided government basically kept things from getting worse, maybe. But I don't really believe that anything about our political system is that real. So I don't really believe that. Whatever, you know, mind screw we were going through in the 90s, it had its purpose and it was done. The last 20 years have been a nightmare for this country. The last 20 years have been grotesque. The last 20 years, they've told people that you can turn your home into a pyramid scheme. And then they figured out a way to convince you that all those homeless people, like the beetles in the forest, just randomly showed up. So I, I don't know what you have your faith in. If you have your faith in this system, you are going to go through some real hard times and you ain't seen nothing yet. Nothing. You haven't seen it yet. You're just on the edge. You, you, like many of us, spent, you know, America especially, the last 60, 70 years going up one side of the mountain. And it was sunny, and there were women wearing bikinis, and it was sexy, and yeah, there were terrible wars, but we kept going up the mountain, and it was, it was so frickin' sunny. And the trail was so nice. We just kept going up. We're on the other side of the mountain now. 
and the sun has gone down, and the trail is rocky and has pitfalls. And some of them are just a couple feet, so maybe all you do is scuff yourself up. And some of them are 10 feet, and, and under the wrong circumstances, a 10-foot drop could seriously injure you. And some of them are 20 or 30, and unless you're doing parkour, you're probably going to have a real bad day. And that's where we're headed. And we've only just begun. The sun is still kind of up. You can see that it's setting, but it's still kind of up. And the trail is still kind of okay. You haven't seen anything yet. Most of what we've seen so far, in my opinion, has been produced, funded, created by the institutions that run our society. And most of it's been BS. And most of it's been designed to cover up the truth, which is the stuff that allows your world to work. All that stuff, overly engineered, overly complex, is starting to do exactly what the mathematics says it would do. And that is eventually fall apart. Unless you can kind of keep the pressure there, right? Unless you can keep it going. But they've run out of people, in my opinion, to rob. They've run out of people to steal from. They've run out of places to rape and pillage. They have run out of their grift. They are the snakehead fish that ate all the other fish, and now they're starving, or at least starting to. They don't want to let you know that. They'd love you to believe they're super strong. Well, we just hired 87,000 IRS agents. You just hired, maybe you're going to hire, 87,000 people who are mentally ill, um, probably obese, and will never know how to use any of the guns you give them at all. This is not something any rational person should be afraid of. However, if your life is dependent upon the system working, then these are indications that it's starting to fall apart. You can believe the trucker rebellion. You can believe the, the train strike crap. You can believe all the food processing plant stories. You believe what you want to believe about China's in lockdown again because China did it right. I know you have to keep a bunch of thoughts in your head that contradict each other, but whatever you believe is your business. All right? I mean, this is a long-winded way of saying that as crazy as it sounds, I just can't sit in a chair, whether it's at an office building or at home, and get paid for doing nothing. That makes me crazy for a person on the Death Star. But I think in terms of my Lord in heaven, it makes me more sane. So I'm, I'm choosing sides. I have been for about a decade. I'm choosing sides. I think a lot of people need to start asking that question. Whose side are you on? And if you're a believer in liberty, it's okay to say, I'm on my own side, Dan. Good. But if you're going out there and you're voting so that some cop can break down somebody's door, your own side is still part of a gang. And you're doing wretched, wretched, wretched shit. And, and chances are it does nothing. I've said that before, I'll say it again. Chances are, when you vote... It has zero connect to what actually is going to happen, to anything important. Like maybe there's superficial crap, maybe, that they allow you to believe your vote impacted. But in my opinion, it does nothing. It does nothing. It's not going to be audited. There is not enough time left in the game. That's the thing that scares people. That's why they get attracted to the Alex Jones FEMA camps. That's why they get suckered into believing a lot of nonsense. Because what really scares people what really scares most Americans 
is that all these things, their pension, their 401k, the fact that they think their house is worth a million bucks, their social security, their Medicare, they, they have to believe all this is just going to keep going. It's going to keep working. And that's not true. It's never been true. They tried to convince you. I mean, especially some of the propagandists from the academic world, like Francis Fukuyama. They tried to convince you history was over. Brothers and sisters, open your eyes. History has begun again. History's happening. They're trying to hide it. They're, they're, they're popping smoke, as I said in early 2020. But it's happening all around you. And they're going to do everything they can to convince you it's something else. Oh, some hacker scammed us, so the electricity's out. Oh, those Russians did something bad, so you're going to have to pay more for fuel. <sighs> they're going to hide it with whatever they can hide it with. They started with the monkey herpes. And maybe they hoped a lot of you would take the vaccine, and maybe the vaccine is killing people. I don't really know. I didn't take it. Because from my perspective, two years ago... It was either poison or placebo. You can roll the dice on that. That podcast I put on YouTube got banned so quick. Poison or placebo. I think the title got it banned. The simple question of what it is. And in my opinion, that, that was it. It's poison or it's placebo. And it's for a non-existent government-created military psychological warfare operation. You don't need a vaccine for a PSYOP. You just need the government to stop, to stop doing that stuff. That's what you need. But you don't need a vaccine. I don't know. I was going to talk a little bit about equilibrium. Because a lot of what we're going through right now is about a change in equilibrium, or I should say equilibrium states. And a good definition of equilibrium, I think a pretty good definition, is that for any set of metrics that define the system, they are nearly 100% predictable. If you work in manufacturing, like statistical process control, you know what that is? You use control charts to make sure that your systems are operating predictably. And, and so you keep track of metrics. You keep track of data. Data that tells you whether or not that widget you're making is a good widget or a bad widget. And that's as much as I want to say here. And if you're inside the zone in terms of your control chart, if it's under control, it pretty much is like saying that your system is in equilibrium. Equilibrium systems have predictable metrics. It doesn't mean the temperature stays the same all the time. It just means that you can predict the temperature. It follows a functional definition. That's another good definition of equilibrium, is that you can fit a function to an equilibrium system, usually, that is nearly 100% predictable, given the variables. Disequilibrium is the opposite. It's a lot like when we talk about discontinuity, although that's a bigger thing. But disequilibrium, you can't make predictions. I mean, you can. You can look at short-term trends and you can be right for a while. It's kind of like the stock market right now. If you're a good forensic accountant and you're really sensitive to organized crime, then I think you can make predictions. But, but in terms of the metrics that are going to have to do with things like, are you going to be dead in a couple years? Those metrics that relate to your food, water, shelter, good luck. Good luck predicting those at this point. In, in a couple of years, my guess is 
a lot of the things people are concerned with right now are going to be off the chalkboard. And a lot of new things are going to be there. That is the prediction you can make during disequilibrium. The prediction you can make with almost 100% certainty is almost everything that is relevant is becoming unpredictable. Now, some would argue that the United States, the whole world, the modern world, has been in a state of disequilibrium for a couple hundred years. Um, certainly, since we discovered and figured out how to use coal and oil and now natural gas, since we've, used the, since we've learned to use technologically these very high-density um, energy stores, they're not really sources. They are sources, but they don't last forever. Since we've used those, some would argue we've been in disequilibrium. We've been in a discontinuity. It's been upward pressure and positive discontinuity, disequilibrium, so people feel as if things are predictable. But that was just because of the illusion of it, you know, riding the wave. Um, I don't know. I think, that, I think that's a valid argument. But what, what also needs to be understood is that even if that's true, the overall discontinuity is not over. We haven't reached the equilibrium state yet. We don't know what that is. Um, the hydrocarbon economy created a disequilibrium that seemed like normality. And that was an illusion. And now what we're beginning to understand is that we're still in that state, the state of disequilibrium, not over yet. But this is gonna be the painful part. This is going to be the hard part. You can call this the hangover if you want to, but I, I don't personally think it's about oil or natural gas or coal. I don't think it's just about the climate. I don't think it's just about culture. I think it's about all the above. All the above are conspiring against what you want to call normal. And that was always going to happen. Okay, the government was always going to be crooked. If you were hoping that somehow magically your government would become less crooked, then you were fantasizing. You were, you were taking your infantile, childish notions of reality and hoping they would be true. No, that was never going to happen. None of this stuff was ever going to turn out differently. In a lot of ways, it was predictable what would happen up to this point. The problem is we don't really know what happens after this point. We don't. A lot of people like to talk about the fourth turning, you know, Strauss and whoever, and, and, and you know, all this generational crap. A lot of people love to apply their, their historicism after the fact. I heard all kinds of people making crooked predictions when Trump was in office. Oh, Trump's going to have eight years, and he's already won. And according to my schmitza or my prophecy or my misuse of the of the word of God, I have predicted this. Well, those people went to ground after 2020 and haven't really talked much about their predictions since. So I don't think anybody really has a good handle on what happens next. I stick to what I told you guys a couple years ago. They're lying to us. The lies are of a huge scale. And you don't lie like this. You don't mess with people like this if what you're trying to hide is a good thing. 
That's it. That's what you're stuck with. I'm sorry that that doesn't make you feel better, but that's way closer to the truth than, oh, they just made a big mistake. The race war, the, the weird gender politics, and the monkey herpes, and now the monkey pox, and who knows, next year could be the monkey crabs. Could be. Just a bunch of mistakes, Dan. I read about something called Hanlon's Razor, and he says it's way more likely it's just a bunch of dumb people making mistakes. Even if you want to believe that, why do you vote? Every four or five years of my life, and I ain't young, they've been telling me and telling us we just made a mistake. It was an accident. Why would you vote for that? Why would you vote for something that is designed to fail and has always been designed to fail. If you want the nicest way to look at what the government's doing, it's doing things it shouldn't do in the worst way possible. That is the nicest way of looking at it. That's what Hanlon's razor, that's where you end up. And ultimately government, it doesn't attract the best. So if you're hoping the best and the brightest are gonna fix things for you, that's not gonna happen either. And in a lot of cases, the smart people the government does attract, they tend to be crap heads. So I talked about this equilibrium stuff because part of what, part of the, what we're dealing with and, and the real question I think we should ask is, is when will this disequilibrium stop? I mean, when will the crazy stop? And then where will we find ourselves? I guess it's two questions. When will it stop and where will we find ourselves? Well, here's what I can tell you. Best case scenario, and that's just, if it's just the collapse of an empire, if it's just the collapse of the US dollar, Best case scenario, the worst of the crazy isn't here yet. And best case scenario, it probably impacts your life for the next 20 or 30 years, maybe even half a century. And in the process, a lot of people are going to die. It, it won't be the end of the world, but the reality is we built up a world that can't function. And the, when it stops functioning, it stops delivering food. And, and you might have a lot of food. You might have a farm someplace, and you might be 100% off the grid, but that's not true for most people, though. So even if you are okay, and even if you ride this out for the next 30 years, okay, that's not what it's going to be like in the cities. It's not, 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 not. They will experience that. If it's worse than the collapse of the dollar, um, I mean, in a, in a weird way, if it's worse than that, it might all be over way sooner. I mean, in that world, there's no God. Because there is nothing in the Bible about the end of the world. When people tell you, but what about the book of Revelation? The book of Revelation talks about a next phase of history. Nowhere in there does it say the world has ended. If you go to the end of the book of Revelation, it leaves you with some vagueness about letting Lucifer out of his jail to do some stuff for a while. And, and that follows 1,000 years of the kingdom on earth. So if you're one of these freaks who has never read the Bible, but has listened to, you know, talk radio or NPR, and they told you what the Bible was, well, Dan, it says in the Bible the world comes to an end, you're an idiot. You've never read the Bible. And if you're a Christian who thinks that Revelation describes the end of the world, you're an idiot and you need to work on reading the Bible. There is nothing in the book of Revelation about the end of the world. It does describe the tribulation. It does describe a very, very tough time. 
and I'm 50-50 now, 50%. I'm, I'm pretty much stuck there. You flip a coin. Could be that we are on the cusp of the end times of the book of Revelation, not the end of the world, what the book of Revelation describes, a transitional period, a lot like the great discontinuity, except in this case, it is prophesied. It is something the Lord gave us as prophecy, and if it fulfills prophecy, it reifies faith, which is really the purpose of prophecy. If you think prophecy is about predicting Trump will be president, you're an idiot. If you think prophecy is about being Nostradamus, biblical prophecy, you're an idiot. Biblical prophecy is about reifying faith. If you don't understand that, you don't even understand most of mythology or religious history. Nobody likes somebody who tells you something bad's going to happen. And by the way, that kind of dovetails into, if you've read your Bible, you should know something else too. You never want to be a prophet. Prophets are chased, prophets are beaten, prophets are threatened, their families are killed. Prophets end up on crosses and mocked, okay? Nobody likes it when you tell them bad news. You know why? one of the reasons why Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh? Because Jonah was no slouch. He knew the simple fact that even if you say, listen, change your ways, you'll be okay... Nobody wants to change their ways. It's why all this Green New Deal nonsense is so very popular with people. Um, nobody wants this to, to give up on the things that they thought they were promised and that were certainties, like electricity. A lot of people think electricity, having electricity, is a human right. I mean, there are people who use that language. Dan, you have a human right. I, I read my Rawls. There's positive and negative freedoms. Freedom from is negative, but positive is freedom to have electricity. Right? According to Rawls, according to the great philosopher of ethics. Positive freedoms are freedoms to have things. Like electricity. And, and running water. And cheap food that's easy to find. Those are human rights, Dan. I mean, you know, it's funny. None of that's in the Bill of Rights, though. Even though the Constitution was a sideways hit job, at least the Bill of Rights is ironic enough to tell you the truth. Nowhere in the Bill of Rights does it say you have a right to health care. Nowhere in the Bill of Rights does it say you have a right to electricity or water. Nowhere in the Bill of Rights does it say any of that at all. At least that's a little bit of truth about reality. Your freedoms are freedoms from things, okay? There is no freedom to live forever. Yes, in Christ, you're, you can live forever, but it's not a freedom. It's an obligation and a faith, okay? There is no freedom to be healthy, okay? If you think there is, you're crazy. You, you, have, a, you have, I guess, the basic existential right of existence in the world until you don't. You have a lease, on a pile of organic organic chemistry. You have a temporary loan from the biosphere, but it's not a guarantee. You will be born and you will die, and there is no freedom to change any of that, okay? It does not exist. That freedom does not exist. But a lot of Americans don't understand that. They don't. It's why it's gonna hurt so much. It's why I don't care. It's why when I get really depressed, especially these days, my not giving a crap gets turned up to a billion. 
I don't care. I am tired. I'm already seeing the looks on your faces and I'm already hearing the stuff a lot of people say. I do not know how long the great discontinuity will last. I think I said that in 2019 and I stick to it. And I don't know what form it will take. You know, if you listen to the podcast, I described a lot of scenarios. Some of them, in, in, in a weird way, came true, but not in the way I expected. Some of them haven't come true yet, okay? One of the things that is possible, because people can be wretched and government attracts incredibly wretched people, one thing that is possible, if this is just the collapse of the dollar, is that we could be looking um, at World War III. Because empires love to stir up crap at the end. It's something they do. You know, at the very, very end. If you're listening, if you're listening, baby, if you're listening, if you're listening on shortwave radio, that's 5850 kilohertz, Friday night, 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, um, there's going to be more of this podcast you can listen to uh, on my podcast links in my notes, but you only get an hour of this, and the hour is almost up. If you want the notes for this podcast broadcast, just go to planetarystatusreport.com slash WRMI, and you can click on the link, and it'll have all the notes, including links to the MP3 that you can download. You don't have to pay for. I mean, I'd love a donation, and there is a donation link, but you don't have to donate. Um, and I'm not going to guilt trip you, okay? I, I know there are a lot of podcasters out there, a lot of YouTube vloggers, whatever, who spend a certain amount of time talking about, you know, you giving me money. I have the common sense to know that a lot of folks just don't have any extra money. And, and they haven't, not since early 2020. I, I know that's random, but the reality is a lot of folks simply don't have the money to donate. And I don't feel comfortable telling you, well, if you don't donate, you can't have the show. The reality is next month, I might not have the money to put the show on the radio. And if you have so much fiat currency that it's burning a hole in your pocket, you can donate. But here's the deal. Every minute on WRMI costs a dollar, okay? Um, that means that 60 minutes, 60 bucks, that means that it's 240 bucks a month to do four shows. Under normal circumstances, I could pay for that. If this job had worked out, I could pay for it. I can't right now. So there's a chance in October that the show won't be on. However, if I can get enough money in, I could probably buy another month. And then maybe December, right? And then who knows, right? Who knows? Next topic. I spent almost an hour on updating you and ranting about equilibrium and, and crap. So. So um, this next topic actually has to do with something 
that I would, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to try to like not spend too much time on these next topics because I did spend so much on the first one. But um, the title is Nukes and Other Stuff, but the reality is it has to do with a simple idea. There are a couple of movements in technology in the last couple decades that have had a significant impact. These aren't government movements. These aren't corporate movements. In fact, they're, they're movements that work against the government and against corporations. One of them is open source. The idea that, you know, intellectual property might be a thing, but protecting it with lawyers and cops and prisons is probably stupid. And that actually sharing the designs for technology, like for example, Yezu makes a radio, the FT891, and I think this applies to all their radios. They make the schematics for the Yesu public so people can fix the Yesu. So at least Yesu, which makes radios, recognizes the right to repair, for example. And it recognizes open source and engineering because it publishes the schematics. A lot of technology companies are not like that. Um, Apple, that makes your phone, is not like that. Microsoft is not like that. They don't really believe in open source. They don't believe in it. They'll say, well, it's about security. If it's open source, people, it will be no security. And, and that's a lie. There's no more security from complexity. If anything, adding complexity gives you more ways to hack a system. So the argument they make that somehow it's better if they keep it a secret for your security is a lie. But a lot of companies are like that now. When I was a kid and my dad was working on his equipment, like the Garrett Skitters and stuff, he could fix it. If he had the money, if he could buy the parts, if he could find a place to, to work on it, he could fix his skitter, which is basically a big tractor for, you know, logging. You know, when they cut down a tree, you, you tow the log to the landing to put it on a truck. The skitter would do that. He could work on his equipment. If, if he had a John Deere, he could work on it. If he bought a John Deere today, he would be told he can't work on it. He doesn't have a right to fix it. He doesn't even really own it in reality because the minute he touches it, he violates his warranty. And now it's getting to the point that companies are starting to sue people for trying to work on their own equipment. So that's the opposite of right to repair. Now, why am I talking about this? For a long time, especially prior to World War I, and I think things really, really went sideways. I mean, from the beginning, the Constitution was always a logic bomb for tyranny. It was always going to end up here. But I'd say World War I and Woodrow Wilson was one of those epical periods in taking it to the next level. And I don't want to talk about the Federal Reserve because in a lot of ways it's its own thing. But starting about 100 years ago, a right that I think was embedded in the Constitution for a reason a right that I would have expected we all have started disappearing, and that is the right to know. Don't get me wrong. Crooks and criminals, which includes the government, will do everything they can to keep a secret. They'll try to keep a secret. And you know what? Every living thing has a right to try to keep a secret. And every other living thing has a right to know, which means that you have a right to discover. It doesn't mean you'll find the truth. It doesn't mean the, the people keeping the secret will screw up. If you've got good encryption, if you have a trustworthy team, you can keep a secret. And, and maybe no journalist will ever find out your secret. But up until 100 years ago, if you were a journalist or a researcher, 
other than corporations trying to kill you, you could go find out the truth and you wouldn't necessarily end up in jail for finding the truth. Now, this wasn't 100% the case because like I said, pretty much from the beginning, pretty much from the Constitutional Convention, the Bill of Rights were being attacked. But up until about 100 years ago, as a journalist, you didn't necessarily have to be afraid to be thrown in jail because you found out a secret. Now, today, where we're at today, it's way worse. Not only do you fear to be thrown in jail for finding out the truth, which means you don't have any right to know. It's important you don't. Not any longer. You can talk about freedom of information. Dan, isn't there FOIA? Isn't there freedom of information? No, they're not. Not really. I mean, they'll, they'll publish some papers years later, but if they want to keep it secret for national security, they will. How many decades have they been promising to take all those JFK files and make them public? It's, it's another every four or five years kind of crap. You're never going to know. And by the time you do know, everybody involved will be dead. And it'll be about history books, assuming anybody's publishing a history book at that point, right? Open source and right to repair, whether or not people involved in those you know, movements know this or not, open source and right to repair are predicated on the idea that you as an intelligent person have a right to research and discover what you put in your body, what you load onto your computer, what you drive to work, that you have a right to at least understand or try to understand the technology you use. That is, it's predicated on that. So when I talk about the right to know, and I'm, I'm really talking about transparency, I'm talking about a value that isn't just a nice to have. Um, here's a quote from Dr. Freckles. Transparency is the key to managing risk. What does that mean? Well, a lot of people think of transparency and the right to know with respect to the government as extras, as nice-to-haves, but it's not that at all. These are things that function to limit the crazy. Me, personally, I'm an anarchist, and, and that doesn't mean I'm violent. It just means that I'm opposed to people telling me what to do. But um, as long as I don't harm them, if I'm leaving them alone, I want to be left alone. That's how complicated my politics are. Um, but if you want a government in a free society, if that's a desire of yours, about the only way it can function is through transparency. It doesn't mean the government won't try to keep secrets. It will. Okay? Any group of two or more people involved in a criminal enterprise will do what they can to keep secrets, and this includes the government. So, yeah, they're going to keep secrets. But if you want your system to kind of work, you cannot criminalize the pursuit of the truth, okay? Imagine a situation. Imagine a situation with a government contractor, and this government contractor is working on a super-secret jet airplane. And then one day, during their experiments and testing and prototyping, one of the engineers goes up to some workers and says, can you take that slag, that grimbus, that stuff that you don't have a clearance to know what it is, and can you take it out back and burn it? Take the, the paint and the metal chips and all that composite material and just go back there and burn it. And an employee says, well, should I wear a mask? And the truth is, and this is what's really critical, 
is that the only way that engineer could tell the employee that they should wear a mask is by violating a security agreement, by violating an agreement that would remove their top secret clearance. Now you could say to yourself, and again, these employees, they burn the stuff, they get cancer, they get sick, they get scales on their arms that look like crocodile scales. And, and to cut to the end of the story, this actually happened. This happened with the F-117 program back in the 70s and 80s. People were told to do stuff that ended up killing them. And one of the reasons why it happened was a 100% lack of transparency. Now you could say, well, but Dan, how did we find out decades later? Listen to your thought process. The transparency would have helped those workers in the 80s so they didn't die of some wretched metal poisoning. The transparency would have helped their families who had to watch a loved one to basically tortured to death. That's when it would have helped. The right to know of those people, to, or at least a right to investigate, the right to ask an engineer, should I wear a mask when I'm burning this crap, would have saved lives. But the reality is the security clearance didn't even allow an engineer to say, yes, that stuff is dangerous. It's toxic. It'll kill you if you're burning it. In fact, you shouldn't burn it. There are other ways to deal with it. What idiot told you to burn it, right? The nuclear industry is shrouded in clearances, secret, top secret, Q clearances, a lot of need to know, not right to know. And that includes people who work in the industry, especially when it comes to breeder reactors. Now, what's a breeder reactor? A breeder reactor, uh, yeah, one of those guys, it generates isotopes of, of different useful types. Like there are isotopes that are used in hospitals for radiation treatment. There are isotopes that are used in hospitals for different types of scanning and imaging, okay? There are isotopes used in industry for lots of different reasons. You know, there are isotopes, useful isotopes that are bred from reactors that are used for long-term nuclear batteries and, you know, space probes, if you believe what NASA tells you. So these isotopes have a purpose, they have a use, but the reality is a lot of the questions about how breeder reactors work a lot of the information is top secret, even today. You can know general things, like you can understand the little cartoon they show you, the cutout, like with Admiral Rickover, this is how a nuclear submarine works. You can know that. You can know the cartoon version, but the deep, deep secrets about how they work are not publicly available. And you would say, well, damn, that's good. Because if people knew how nuclear reactors work, they'd just start building them everywhere. And I don't want to get into that because you clearly don't understand uh, how much that technology costs to believe that'll happen. But the bottom line is you don't have a right to know. Now let's say, for example, that you lived in a community. Let's say you lived in Pennsylvania in 1979. And what you know is that a local reactor at Three Mile Island is, is having problems, but you're getting a lot of contradictory information. Maybe there's a problem. Maybe there isn't a problem. Maybe some radiation was released. Maybe not, right? A lot of different types of contradictory information. But here's what you need to know as a citizen in that town in 1979. 
you have no right to know the truth, even then. None. Zero. Zip. Nada. You have no right. You have no right to even try to survive. Like, for example, let's say you had a reactor today that was starting to melt down, and the engineers involved bugged out. I mean, I know, Dan, they'd never do that, really? On the Death Star? You think that people are, are motivated, for the most part, beyond their paycheck? I mean, I, I know that's the propaganda, but I'm sorry, I don't see it. So let's say a bunch of idiots at the Soviet-style reactor on the West Coast decide to just bug out and let the thing cook off. According to the way America works today, you don't even have a right to know that's happening. You don't even have a right to know how you might be able to survive if you had intelligent people in your community, engineers who might be able to help, they don't have a right to know that they could help. Transparency. If you want this system to work, me personally, I don't think any government can ever work. They're designed to fail. But if you want a government to work in a free society, transparency is not a nice to have. It's not an additional feature. It's not like getting fuel injection in 1982. Transparency is bedrock necessary. Without it, you end up where we are today. And this just doesn't apply to military technology. This just doesn't apply to the nuclear industry. In my opinion, it applies to things like the pandemic as well. Okay, we may never know the truth about it. Me personally, you know what I think. It was 100% BS. But here's what I do know. You don't have a right to know and neither do I. You don't have the clearance. You don't have the need to know. You don't know the right people. And if you did and you told the truth, they would kill you or throw you in jail. And then they would tell you what, you know what though, is for national security, national security, national security. Huh. <laughs> You don't have a right to know. Imagine for a moment that the government came to your door one day and knocked on and said, Hey, buddy, knock, knock, knock. Hey, hey, pal, I want you to put the bo this box in the corner of your home. What's in the box? Well, you don't have a right to know. Just leave it in the corner. Don't put anything on it. Do I need to plug it in? No, no, no. It's okay without plugging in. And that government person says you have to have this box. And before you say, that's crazy, Dan, that would never happen, they're already getting ready in this country, in other countries, to make it mandatory to have devices in your car that are government-required devices. And you don't have a right to know how they work, and you don't have a right to control them. They are devices that will go in your car, and if you tamper with them, they'll probably have a sticker that says, $10,000 fine or two years in jail. And it doesn't even matter if that's true. It doesn't matter. It's the same thing with the, the John Deere tractor you don't have a right to fix. It doesn't matter that it's just a threat. It's a threat. Okay, governments always truck in fear. That's their main currency is fear. But when governments reach the end point, when they start to collapse, they become 100% fear machines. Because frankly, fear is cheap. Fear is cheaper than bombs, cheaper than fuel, cheaper than, you know, frankly, um, devalue, devalue, devaluing your currency. Fear is cheap, you know. Does that remind you of any country you've been living in the last couple of years? So, so the thing is, they, they say you've got to put this box in your home. 
It's a box. It's one foot by one foot. It's a black box. You don't know what's inside it. There's a sticker on the outside that says, if you open this box, you will be fined $100,000. Or you'll get 10 years in jail. Here's what you don't know. What you don't know is that box contains a bomb. Um, it contains about three pounds of Semtex, enough to basically destroy a lot of typical family homes. You don't know that it's a bomb. You don't know that it has a battery, an isotope battery, uh, that will power it for 50 years. You don't know that it's connected to cellular networks. Guess what? The criminals do. They figure that out pretty fast. <laughs> Isn't that fun? The criminals, the black market, the, the thing that the government will never control and only makes bigger by becoming bigger, they know. The crooks down the street know. They know that that box is a bomb. But you don't. Because you're a good voter and you, and you see a label on a mattress that says if you remove this label, you'll go to jail. <sighs> you do not have a right to know what's in the box. You don't have a right to fix what's in the box. Your family might get destroyed by the box, and you don't have any rights about that either. That is the America we live in right now, okay, today. That's not the future. That's not a dystopia that's down the road. You are living in a dystopia where you could have a device in your environment, and you don't have a right to fix it. You don't have a right to survive. You don't have a right to even react to reality because you are being told to simply obey and to shut up. You know, if we had a functional system of journalism in this country, well, number one, I don't think 9-11 would have turned out the way it did. I think that that particular nut would have been cracked open pretty fast. But if we had a functional like group of people called professionals, an actual estate to think in those, you know, Nine, no, excuse me, 18th century enlightenment ways, if we actually had an estate, a part of society called the journalists, called the news, that actually did investigation work, 9-11 probably would have ended up with Bush in jail and Clinton, because that, that wasn't planned overnight. So a bunch of folks, Clintons and Bushes would have been in jail. But the pandemic, um, in terms of what it did, would have never happened. If you had these people, they tell you, they're like Woodward and Bernstein out there finding the truth. Well, I don't know about Woodward and Bernstein, but I do know what we're mostly being fed now is crap. And it's hard to sift through that crap. It's getting really gross, you know. Mostly poop, not a lot of corn kernels. If we had an inherent right to know. And this doesn't mean the government won't keep secrets. It doesn't mean your neighbors won't keep secrets. It just means that nobody has a right to throw you in jail because you discover a secret. And we can get into the ethics of letting people know you know that they're lying or you know their secret. That's a separate issue. All things being cons considered, it's okay to keep a secret, I think. It's also okay to discover one. And in neither case 
either keeping a secret or discovering a secret should a person go to jail in a free society that wants to survive. If you want to just get on a ship loaded with dynamite and in 100 or 200 years explode, then have all the secrecy laws you want. Okay, throw all the Assanges you want to in jail. You are screwed. You were screwed. You, you may not be screwed today, but you will be screwed eventually. But if you, if you believe in quote-unquote good government that you vote for, then you've you got to believe in transparency. How can democracy work without it? How can you vote if you don't know what you're voting for? It's like, say, you can vote for box A or box B, but you don't get to know what's in the box. I mean, that's a lot like the, the guy from the government saying, hey, put this box in the corner of your house exactly where we tell you to put it, but you don't, know, but you don't get to know what's inside it. That is American democracy today. Best case scenario. Even if your vote gets counted, you have no clue what you're voting for. You're simply voting for product A versus product B, but they could both be poison. I mean, are there still people who investigate and crack the nut? I mean, an interesting example would be Subway and their sandwiches that, that you know, their tuna sandwiches that contain so many things excepting tuna. Um, there are cases like that, but think about where they occur. You get to know what's in your tuna fish sandwich. For now, though, right now, you can know what's in your tuna. But my God, brothers and sisters, if this government continues to survive and this crooked fiat system keeps plugging along, can you imagine in a couple of years where they have a label on a piece of paper on your Subway sandwich that says, if you take a microscope... Or, or some type of, you know, <laughs> gas chromatograph or some type of cyclotron or, or a CAT scan and you try to figure out what the F is in your sandwich, you will be fined 10000 bucks or go to, go to jail for three years. That sounds crazy and absurd and impossible. But yeah, that's where we're at in the game, brothers and sisters. I think I spent a lot of time on that one too, brothers and sisters. Um, I'm double checking time right now, actually. Spent a lot of time on that one. Yeah. More than I intended to. But I want to emphasize the point. If you believe in anything remotely connected to the U.S. Constitution, if you believe this is a constitutional republic, the only way that I know that you're going to keep it from being destroyed is through transparency. I don't care if that's military operations. I don't care if that's top secret jets made of toxic material. I don't care if it's, that, if it's nuclear power plants. I don't care if it's your Subway sandwich. 
People will keep secrets, but you have a right as a living creature to be curious and to discover the secrets. You should not go to jail or be sued or fined because you discover the truth. In fact, in a society that actually wants to have a chance at survival, finding the truth should be the value, not hiding it not keeping secrets, not creating some type of Soviet dystopia, but actually discovering the truth is something that should be lauded. Not pumping iron, you know, pumping iron or beating people up in ultimate fighting, not baseball or basketball or football, but in a free society that wants one chance in hell of surviving, finding the truth should be something that people are proud of, not scared of. next topic, right? And I mean, we're way past WRMI time here, but if you're listening and you came to this podcast from WRMI, welcome aboard. I'm not really sure I've done a great job with the F-bombs, but in theory, you could hear more now. Um, you know, FCC, right? Here's a quote from Gover here's a quote from Dr. Freckles. Government is an amplifier for shitheads. Now I'm I'm going to read another quote from Dr. Freckles too because believe it or not they're related. Just because smart people are working on something does not mean it works. Another quote from Dr. Freckles. All living things that have consciousness that have a, an ability to reason about their environment. And, and humans definitely do that, you know, uber well. But a lot of creatures have enough consciousness to reason about the world around them and, and, and to do so in, in interesting and deep ways. Again, not like people, but still pretty impressive. Um, that little bit of consciousness helps you survive, but that little bit of consciousness also can can hurt you. You know, that... That, that imagination and fear um, often overwhelms you and you can make bad decisions. So being dumb or being a shithead isn't necessarily a permanent state, okay? We're all capable of being shitheads. The problem with government is it amplifies it, okay? It does. It, it does a lot of things, but when it comes to stupid ideas, it takes it to 11. In fact, here's a formula. Take fear plus imagination, square it, because it's at least polynomial, and subtract out all the wisdom. That's essentially government on one level. Fear and imagination squared, subtracting wisdom. And, you know, that's why people will say they'll go to the town square, the Agora, that didn't need any government to come into existence, and they'll say, somebody has to do something. Some crazy person is stealing my tomatoes. Somebody is pooping in my yard. Why don't we form a homeowners association? In fact, in a weird way, that's how it kind of started, in a, in a weird way. It was probably in part about tribes and groups of people, especially once they started you know, settling permanently, slash and burn, growing some food, getting that high-density diet you need for civilization, right? It probably started out thousands of years ago, six, seven thousand years ago, as a very loose general agreement on basic stuff. You know, basic stuff that 
mostly we could agree on. Like, don't go around killing people. If you go around killing people, you're probably gonna get killed. Sorry. Don't steal people's shit. We don't have money for a prison. We don't even know what a prison is yet. So if you steal people's shit, we might cut off your hand, fucker. There were a lot of these rules, and, and it was probably a lot like a homeowner association. And listen, there's basic stuff that you can get a lot of people to agree to. Like, for example, noise ordinances. I think a lot of people would say, I don't want those kids turning up their music all night. I have to sleep. And that's rational. And for the most part, that can be negotiated amongst intelligent people without any cops or lawyers. And that happens every day in the United States of America. You don't talk about it for a couple of reasons. One, it's boring. And two, the government doesn't really want you to know that you can resolve conflict without it. In fact, it doesn't want you to know this because it also doesn't want you to know that the government injects, creates, sponsors a lot of divisive bullshit. BLM Antifa, if you've studied what the FBI did in the 1960s and you could not see BLM and Antifa for what it is, then you're fine, you're fine. Just keep staring at your phone, the check's in the mail. But if you have a little bit of awareness, you could tell that BLM and Antifa were Operation Chaos from the 60s, something the FBI had done many times before. In fact, it wasn't the 60s wasn't the first time the FBI did it. One could argue the FBI came into existence doing this kind of crap, okay? Back in the 20s, it came into existence um, as an organization, creating division and fear. So one of the reasons why the government doesn't want you to understand that you can resolve conflict without it is because it doesn't want you digging deeper and realizing that a lot of the conflict you have to deal with was 100% created. I don't care if it's the coffee filter at Walmart, the dude that says you're not covering your nose. I don't care if it's the weird Antifa folks walking down the street um, taking advantage of the coffee filter because that way you can be in the Republican protest next. Nobody knows who you are unless it's a close-up. And, and yeah, a couple um, dingbats tried to beat me up one day because I was doing close-ups with a camera. I lived on 12th Avenue in Seattle, and they said, you can't be taking pictures of this. It's something. No good reason. I was taking pictures of bicycle cops dressed as anarch, well, not really anarchists, dressed as Antifa with their glocks sticking out, and <sighs> that was forbidden. You, you weren't supposed to take pictures of the fact that this was 100% a government-run organization. Yeah, they're useful idiots inside of BLM Antifa, fucking morons, but... The creation, the funding, 100% government, 100% NGO sideways funding through the banking system, 100% deep state. Which also gets back to that right to know thing. Um, you don't have a right to know that. You don't have a right to know you're being lied to. That is the reality of your situation. But the fact that government attracts people and attracts a lot of shitheads and basically is a lot of fear and imagination given too much power, that's something that is deeper and more intrinsic and it's something people should just think about, okay? It's kind of like when someone says there ought to be a law, it's the opposite. 
It's the opposite. We need to be removing laws. Like if you actually think the system, the system you participate in when you vote is supposed to work, we need to be getting rid of laws. We have too many laws. We have a law for everything. We don't need another law. The only reason to create new laws is to create more confusion. I've said this before, and, and I'll say it again. Another thing essential to understanding government is government is a, an engine, a factory for generating complexity. And there is never a case in the physical world where adding complexity fixes anything. Temporarily, temporarily, maybe it can. I mean, if you look around right now, there are a lot of clowns, whether it's Powell at the Federal Reserve or the people that work for Biden. There are a lot of clowns doing a lot of crazy stuff to keep the plate spinning, okay? So they can add complexity to keep the plate spinning longer. But let's say you went to your mechanic. I said, Mr. Mechanic, my engine's got, my engine has problems with fuel efficiency and whatnot, you know, crap. It looks like it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to get bad soon, maybe even fail me. Is there anything you can do? Now, an honest mechanic might say, no, your engine's damaged. Um, you're going to have to fix it. A crooked mechanic might say, here's this magical spray. You can buy it for 25 bucks at the kiosk over there. You spray this into your gas tank, and, and it will add another 10,000 miles. And that sounds pretty good right now. What that mechanic doesn't tell you is that when your engine finally fails, it will fail catastrophically. Engineers, good engineers, understand the best kind of failure is non-catastrophic. This gets back to the nuclear thing, too. We were sold with nuclear that accidents can never happen. Publicly, we already know of several accidents that have happened. We have no idea, and we don't have a right to know how many government nuclear accidents happened before they got it right, okay? Maybe someone in your family disappeared and got cancer, and maybe indirectly you suspect you know, but you don't have a right to know, okay? Engineers who work on systems, especially systems that have risk, and nuclear systems are not the only systems with risk, um, large petroleum plants that fractionate petroleum to produce lots of different chemicals, they can fail. They can have explosions. They can produce a lot of toxic material. Chemical plants can, can be very dangerous. Bhopal, India, research it. I think many thousands of Indian people were killed because a chemical plant failed. Okay, So it's not just nuclear. Chemical plants, you name it. A lot of, a lot of technology can have risk. If your system fails, Whatever your system is, I don't care if it's a nuclear plant, a space shuttle, or somebody making batteries in India. If your system fails, ideally it fails in a non-catastrophic way. And one definition of non-catastrophic, and maybe the only pertinent one, is no loss of life. Okay? We don't have a right to know. You don't have a right to know. I don't have a right to know whether a nuclear power plant down the street will actually fail in a non-catastrophic way. You don't have a right to know that. They'll tell you it will. They'll show you the cartoon. 
You know, here's a cartoon cut out of a nuclear submarine with Admiral Rickover. They'll do that crap. But in terms of how that reactor works and what is really going on, you have zero transparency. You have zero right to know. Years later, you can file a, file a FOIA request and maybe it'll get approved, you know, decades after everyone you love died of cancer. Um, yeah, right in the nick of time. But in terms of when the information will be helpful, which is right now, you don't have a right to know. All right? And that's government. And that's the thing you need to know about that. It isn't just that it attracts wretched people. It isn't just that it's like taking fear and imagination and squaring it. It's not just that. But given all that, the way our system is working today, you do not have a right to know that anything is wrong. You simply have a right to be a victim. That is the world the technocracy wants to have. They don't want right to repair. They don't want open source. And they don't want right to know. Okay? They want you to know that you're going to end up like Julian Assange if you actually investigate something. Because, oh my God, what if it's top secret? Top secret. You know, Hillary Clinton's talking about the price of oil. It's top secret. You know? No. In a free society, these wretched people like Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump, these really terrible people, in a free society, they can keep all the secrets you, they want to. They can have their secrets. And you can have a free press that's going to find those secrets if they can. And that's the way it's supposed to work. If you want this wretched system to work. Next topic. Here's another quote from Dr. Freckles. Oh, boy. Another quote from Dr. Freckles. Brutality, brutality can make the truth seem a lie. Brutality, being brutal, can make the truth seem a lie. Now, what does that mean? You know, so far in this podcast, we've talked a lot about issues of honesty and transparency. And yeah, I spent a lot of time cringy talking about my depression. That's great. So in a weird way, it's good that there's kind of a theme here. But the other side of the mountain, and the thing that's hard, especially when it comes to trying to tell people in terms of warning them, it's like I said, in 2019, I was pretty certain that you could take a timeline and you could put a pin on that line 2019 and there would be the world before and the world after. And that's why I felt comfortable warning people in 2019 about what was about to happen. And I felt comfortable telling them, this is what I think I know. And these are my assumptions. And there were a lot of assumptions because I mean, if I was right about the great discontinuity, I also had to say, you can't really predict what's about to happen. Like, all I can predict is it's going to be crazy. And, and it's going to be weird and exciting. And some of these things seem positive, And they are in a way. I mean, you know, one of the ways I described the great discontinuity in 2019. Imagine you're a hang glider. Imagine you like to hang glide. You got a glider and you hang on it. And you're on these cliffs on the edge of an, almost an infinite ocean in front of you. You're on these cliffs with your hang glider. There's a nice wind that day. You know, enough of a wind. There's probably some thermals out there. Thermals are updrafts of warm air. You know, people that like to glide love thermals. 
mostly. Imagine you're on a cliff. And if you've heard this podcast before, I've talked about it before. It's a thought experiment. It was how I was trying to describe the great discontinuity in 2019. You're on a cliff. You got your hang glide. You're a hang glider. You're about to go off the cliff and glide. And in front of you is this nearly infinite ocean filled with little islands. Okay, between the islands is water filled with great white sharks. Pretty bad. You fall in the water. You're gonna die. But there's a bunch of these tiny islands you can land on. Way in the distance, there's, you know, there's um, interplanetary island, called Star Trek Island. Way in the distance, there's super technology, you know, what are they trying to tell us? Um, the end of scarcity. There's, there's, there's the island where scarcity is no longer a thing. You get all your stuff printed. All your food and water is cheap. It's way out there, though. It's about, you know, maybe a thousand miles away. All the islands next to the cliff are things like pain and torture island, starvation island, famine and death island, Wookiee revolution island. The point is, there's nuclear war island and, yeah, probably real pandemic island. There's all these really crappy, crooked islands right out in front of you, which means that more or less, with, with, with not, a great, not, a, not a lot of skill, more or less, you could easily glide off the cliff and reach one of those islands, okay? So this is how you need to understand where we're at. It's not to say that we're doomed. It's just that reality right now is really the hang glider. And a lot of the variables are just completely beyond my control and your control. If you believe in God, then the good news is is the good news. The, you know, Jesus is in charge. But if you don't believe in God, these are not things you control or anybody does at all, period. Um, and the glider isn't really you. It sort of is and it's sort of not. Um, you are the glider, but so is you know the reality where we're at right now. And we might land on a really cool island. We might catch a lot of thermals, which means you do that that corkscrew updraft thingy where you gain altitude. You know, some of these hang gliders have pretty cool records. They've gone pretty far. You, you need thermals to do it. We might make it to um, interplanetary island. In fact, you know, we might be that lucky. And the probabilities might line up that interplanetary island's not that far away or, or post-scarcity island or everybody's happy and gets a donut island. But the cruel truth is, and I told people this in 2019, the most likely future states for the current discontinuity or disequilibrium, if you want to think of it that way, the most likely future states were mostly terrible. They were mostly terrible, mostly difficult, and did, in almost every scenario that I could think of, involve a lot of people dying. And, and it doesn't even have to be a conspiracy. It could just be we got to this point in the road and the grifters who told you you could go another 20 miles were lying to you. And where you're at right now is the middle of the desert and there's no water and there's no food. It could be you were led to a point, billions of people were led to a point by liars. 
It could be that simple. Forget Hanlon's razor. How about my razor? They might just be lying to you. They could be grifters, really likely, that they're con artists and grifters. They know how to spend money. They know how to hire crooked, smart people to do really dangerous things. But they lied to you about how far you could go. They lied to you about all the threats you were facing. They were lying to you. And they left you in the desert, in a car, out of gas, no water, no food. That, that could be what's going on. So when I say people might die, you can put it into the FEMA camp thing if you want to, if that helps you. If you live in a city, you know, spoiler alert, if you live in a city, you're already in the FEMA camp. Okay, just get, get, get away from that one. You know, I don't know if Alex Jones has ever had to plan large-scale logistics, but the way he talks about FEMA camps, I don't think he has, okay? You are in the camp if you're in the city. If you want to get out of the camp, leave the city like I did. But you're already in the camp, and as long as this wretched government exists, the camp is only going to get worse, not better. But you tell people that, and you tell people that in a, in a way that you don't soften it at all. There's no spoonful of sugar. There's no fifth of whiskey. It's hard. It's brutal. It's brutal. It's, it's why the Cassandra myth exists, because myths represent kind of general archetypes and general truths. And a general truth of human existence, and I think this applies to almost every conscious creature. I mean, I don't care if it's some freak down the street who gets a pension check or little boomer who expects a walk every morning from me and expects half my taco. He's just a dog, but he has expectations. And by gumpus, if reality doesn't match his expectations, he gets really pissed off. When I was in the hospital just for a day, it took him almost a week to start forgiving me. Think about that. I wake up almost every morning to give him a walk, and just because for a day I wasn't around, he thought I, I'd abandon him, okay? He had expectations concerning reality. And for him, it was brutal to not be able to have that walk, I'm sure, because from his perspective, this was something that made him happy, okay? Nobody wants the bowl taken away. Nobody wants to t be told in reality at midnight or 1 a.m. that they have to go home. And, you know, they don't have to stay. They don't have to go home, but they can't stay there. Nobody wants the party to end. It's normal. It's normal. And there's nothing, in many cases, there's nothing more brutal than coming out and telling people it's over. It's over. It, it's like, you know, my sister and her, and her oncologist 10 years ago. And, you know, I had another sibling there when he did this. The last time I didn't mention the sibling, I got in trouble, so I just want to make sure I mention it. But me and a sibling, you know, and my sister Nancy were sitting there with the oncologist, and he looks her in the eyes and says, Nancy, are you sure you want to know the truth? Now, understand this. Simple, basic, transitive reasoning, basic logic, a Piaget stage of development that we all go through by the time we're 10 or 12, that basic reasoning would tell you at that point that the news was bad. That that was the most cowardly way of telling the truth. Are you sure you want to know? In 2019, I could have done a bunch of podcasts about cocaine and hookers and, and you name it, eight different sexual positions I invented. 
but hadn't tested yet. In 2019, I could have done a bunch of podcasts and they probably would have been way more fun and entertaining where I did the following. I picked some banal topic, food, sports, movies. Haha, <laughs> did you hear that thing that guy said? I could have done that. And then at the very end of every podcast, I could say, but if you really, really want to know the truth, you can email me. Uh, number one, if, if, if they enjoyed the funny, they would never email me. And number two, isn't that the most crooked way to say you're willing to be honest? But it's not very brutal. Brutality, um, in, its, in, its, in the terms of being honest, brutal honesty, is often necessary. But the problem is it can make the truth seem like it's not true because people don't want to hear it. It's like Dane Wigington. He is brutally honest. You know, he's brutally honest and I think also maybe confused because if you believe what he says, him wanting to sue people and him wanting to make t-shirts and hand out stuff at this point, it makes zero sense. If you believe any of what Dane Wigington's saying about what they're doing to our environment, there are things that rational people should do at this point. But none of it involves doing handouts and none of it involves hiring lawyers. Sorry. So yeah, I, I want to I digress a little, but Dane Wigington is pretty brutally honest. And the problem is, he is so brutally honest that he makes what is true, probably, seem like a lie. He does. He doesn't do that on purpose. I, I, I guess I can believe he's an honest dude trying to help people, but he does provide people with information in such a way that there's very little... Uh, that a person can grab onto and say, well, okay, I can deal with this. You know, it's not the end of the world. I, I don't see how anybody listens to a Dane Wigington, pro you know, podcast, one of his weekly podcasts. I don't see how anyone can listen to him and net net overall not think it's the end of the world because he basically says it. He kind of says we can stop the worst of it if we stop doing the bad stuff, but it's still going to be pretty bad. Well, basically, you've told me it's the end of the world because humans don't do the things, frankly, whether it's boomer or a human. I don't care if it's a dog, a cat, a person, or a chimpanzee. Conscious creatures don't do the things Dane Wigington wants them to do. Not, not overall. Maybe individually you get one or two people who want to know the truth, but most people want to be told things that make them feel better. And the problem is the truth, the real truth in general, doesn't do that. I'm not saying I like it. I mean, this, this podcast has been a lot about transparency and honesty and trying to be radically straightforward. And at the same time, I know in my heart that most people, including me, um, have a point at which they just want somebody to be quiet and shut up. So, you know, you need to understand. I pulled the trigger in 2019 telling people what I believe was going to happen. I waited until I was certain, okay, me personally, not in some deep metaphysical proof sense, but in that intuitive sense that you can be certain sometimes. 
and yet at the same time not be able to prove to people scientifically. I waited until every fiber of my body told me that there was going to be a dividing line between two points, two, I should say two periods in history. And from that point on, the world was going to be progressively radically different in ways that probably were going to be extraordinarily dangerous. Um, but even the way I posed it and even trying to find humor in it, it was pretty brutal and it still is it's it's why i do the podcast i enjoy it but i also don't expect to become popular and it's not just because there's lots of censorship that's an issue but that, that's not the only issue the real censorship that occurs is the censorship that you know little boomer applied because he didn't know what was going on he had no way of knowing what was going on he's a dog i couldn't explain to him i was in the hospital but in the case of humans, they just don't want, we, we don't want to know what's going on. That's how the absolute, powerful, deep censorship works. It's self-censorship. It's, it's everybody either censoring themselves or just ignoring others. It's where we're at in the game. If you want to, if you're intuitive at all, if you have a sense of the world at all, you must sense right now that when you go to a city and you walk around these people, you're walking around hundreds of thousands of people, in some cases millions of people, who are all in their own almost completely separate unique universes. And they are going to do everything they can, cognitively speaking, in terms of their mind and their psychology. They're going to do everything they can to keep those universes safe. And yet... I still think it's important for people to be honest. And this is, yeah, this is almost, it's one of those paradoxes, I think, with respect to human nature. We are so smart and so brilliant as creatures, but we use so much of that intelligence to deceive ourselves and to deceive others. And it's sad that we do, but we do, all of us, including me, you know. You know, I do the best I can when I'm talking to you folks to try to just be honest, but doesn't mean I tell you every cringy detail. That would be pretty, that would be really gross. I'll just tell you off the top. But I also know that if I spent a whole hour, every hour, every time I did a podcast telling you how I really, really feel, it would be just 100% depressing. I mean, at least I can manage based upon my listeners, a smile here, a laugh there. And if I manage a laugh or a smile, I call that success. So I don't want to spend any more time on this topic. But yeah, quote from Dr. Freckles, brutality can make the truth seem a lie. And it's just the rhetoric of it, the strategy of it. It's not good or bad. It's just the way it is. And this also applies to force. You know, it's not just telling people the brutal truth. If you have to use a gun to prove a point, and I don't care if it's true. If it's true, okay, yeah. But if you have to use a gun to prove a point, then probably no one's going to believe you, okay? It's why I understand Dane Wigington's perspective on trying to change people's minds. It's also why I'm not going to talk about the stuff that you probably we would probably need to be doing now if we wanted to stop geoengineering. Okay, and it doesn't involve voting, and it doesn't involve handouts, and it doesn't involve t-shirts or, or, or lawsuits. 
And if you're telling me you think the world's going to be over in a couple years, knowing what I know about the legal system and the giant hairball, barfball, the giant turd, it's going to be swallowing vis-a-vis -vis the pandemic for the next 20 or 30 years, you'd have to be insane to tell me that you think that's a useful application of your resources, okay? The legal system is going to be dealing with all kinds of crazy lawsuits right up until the bitter end. And your geoengineering lawsuit, if it even gets listened to, will be postponed. And postponed way past the two years you tell me or the three years or the five years you, you said the world's going to be over. So, so there's stuff that, you know, even Dane, in his own way, like all of us, let, like let's assume Dane Wigington, as I've said in the past, is a forthright, honest, decent person. He's trying to help people, and I think that's probably true. But you can even see him bargaining if he's talking about t-shirts and lawsuits. That's crazy. That is crazy. That is an example of someone that does not understand history. At this point, the geoengineering is going to stop when the government collapses, period. I don't see people doing anything about it. And, and I said this in a previous podcast. If you went to the American people and said, we've been doing this for 70 years, it's been pretty toxic, but it's one of the reasons why if you live in the, the eastern half of the United States, you know, you don't burn to death every summer and, and our boiling water reactors aren't cooking off. Do you want us to stop? I think most Americans, at least that magical 50 or six, 51 or 60%. But most Americans, if you went to them right now and told them the truth about what they're doing and explained to them that if they stopped, they don't know what will happen. And they don't. They don't know. When they stop, and this is something Dane points out, you're in something called double catastrophe syndrome. So you do not know what will happen. You can use the drug addict as an analogy and ask yourself, what happens to a hardcore heroin addict if they go cold turkey? And the answer is nothing good. And it still is a thing you got to do. You don't have a choice. It's over. Okay. Every heroin addict at some point maybe figures out how to manage it or they go down the hole and eventually OD. But the point is, there is no answer we say, well, you keep doing the heroin. It's over, okay? If they've been doing this to our environment for 70 years, it's a government operation, folks. The same people that tried to frack for, tried to frack for natural gas with tactical nuclear weapons. These are the people we're talking about, okay? It's over. It's done, okay? The only way geoengineering is going to stop is when the United States government collapses. And I think that's going to be pretty soon. It could be wrong, though. And soon might mean we have another year or two. But in historical terms, that's still pretty freaking soon. Still pretty soon, you know? Next topic... Here's a quote from Dr. Freckles. It's possible that the only way to educate is to remove the intimidate. Now, what does that mean? Educate, don't intimidate. This is kind of related to that brutality thing. Um, there are people out there, especially, you can run into them a lot, like if you go into the military and you do basic training. There are a lot of people out there who believe that the best way to teach is with fear and threats 
and mockery and sometimes just, yeah, outright making fun of people and humiliating people. That's the way you learn. And what I will contend is that in the world of B.F. Skinner, applied logic and torture, that's true. You can use a lot of negative reinforcement. You can use a lot of stress and a lot of fear to teach something. Is it the best way? If you only have six weeks or eight weeks with someone who's 18 years old, um, especially these days, you know, all the video games, everything else, all the distractions, if all you have are eight weeks and you have to take an average person and turn them into a soldier, then fear and intimidation and a lot of other, you know, applied techniques that cult leaders understand, it might be necessary. I don't know. I mean, it's something I've been thinking about for years in terms of how you train troops. Um, both when I was in the army and after I thought about a lot, like is the best way to, to teach to, to use fear and intimidation. But if we're talking about educating people in general, sharing information, it isn't helpful to make fun of people. You know, it isn't helpful to call people stupid or, or to keep secrets because they give you power. I kept a secret from my team, my knowledge of whatever, some database system. It was my special secret and that's how I kept my job and I could quiet quit. And that happens a lot in technology, that people are able to survive in part because they keep secrets. You know, they, I have a secret. Now, of course, these are not secrets that you're gonna go to jail to learn in most cases, unless you're working at Lockheed, right? But, um. So you can discover their secret. You can figure it out. I've had to do that. I've had software engineers leave me with disasters. Uh, you know, I, I had a project once six years ago where I was left with about 10, 15 years of code debt. And if you're a programmer, you know what code debt is. And I had a couple weeks, a couple months to fix it all. So I've been there. I've done that. I understand it. Um, But other than hiding stuff from people, the other way people on teams will, will educate each other or train each other is through mockery uh, and a lot of ridicule. And to my credit, um, the teams I've worked on, whether it was for a couple months like this little stint or for a few years, to my credit, I've always tried to share and teach and not intimidate. And I always thought that was the right thing to do. I never for a moment had to read a book on it I just understood that's how you deal with people. You don't immediately go to the negative. If you're getting to the negative, there's no, t there's no learning happening in my opinion. Yeah, 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 maybe basic training. But in the real world, amongst adults who have lives, you're not gonna teach anybody anything by mocking them at all. And this gets past a lot of the social justice stuff. You know, you don't need social justice. If you have people that can behave like adults, you don't. Because adults do not sexually harass each other, okay? Adults don't make fun of each other because of their gender. Adults don't do that because adults wanna to go to work, do their job as well as they can, and get home and be left the F alone, if that's their choice. But adults at work don't spend time on who'd you vote for and why don't you support Trump or Biden or, how do you feel about the pandemic, blah, blah, blah? No, focus on your job. Forget quiet quitting, brothers and sisters. I, I, I've been on LinkedIn 
in the last 10 years. I've worked in corporate America. Most of you hard workers are spending a lot of time on stuff that has nothing to do with work at all. Nothing. Zero. Zip. Nada. Is that quiet quitting? Or is that just an example of, well, what happens to all bureaucracies, especially bureaucracies and systems in a neo-Stalinist hellhole? You answer that for yourself. What I'm telling you is that if you want to share information, it is not helpful, in my opinion, to do so with a lot of negativity and fear and mockery. Next topic. This next one's going to be fast because it deals with kind of a Trump limited hangout thingy. So a limited hangout in espionage terms and in military psychological warfare terms, a limited hangout is where you get a little bit of information that might be true. A little bit of information that might be true and just controversial enough to keep you excited and interested. But you never get to the truth. Limited hangouts don't get you to the truth. It's kind of like the the little bit of truth about 9-11. They kind of put over our head a few years ago. Oh, it looks like the Saudi Arabians were involved. Are you kidding me? We all knew that from day two. We were also told they were part of a great cabal called Al-Qaeda, which several years later became our ally in Syria. You can't make this up. And guess what? You don't have a right to know the truth. We, we were told the Saudi connection. So the, the Saudi revelations from the whatever number of pages from the secret 9-11 report, that was just a limited hangout. There are lots of limited hangouts that our government produce. One of them is called Donald Trump. And if you can't see that at this point, okay, there's another president, as all the Trumpsters like to say, there's another president, okay? You're spending time and energy on something that is being funded by the debasement of the U.S. dollar and by the government stealing your money. And, you're, and now you're, you're stealing your own time, you're wasting your own time on this government-funded nonsense. It's why I don't want to waste a lot of time on it. Oh my God, the FBI broke into Mar-a-Lago and they tracked down the MyPillow guy, whatever, on his hunting trip. If you are renting out your brain to food processing plants and and to train unions that might go on strike, God bless, keep doing it. Like I said at the beginning of this podcast, I don't care. I'm way beyond caring. I, I passed the line of my caring about people living in a state of delusion about a year ago. At this point, if you need to run a movie in your head to get through the day that involves voting and Trump and Q or Biden and social justice, if you're a commie or a conservative, I don't care, okay? Read the above. No one here cares, okay? You are running a movie in your head to get through the day. It's your choice. It's okay. Now, if you give me a speech about drinking beer and, wa- and, and listening to music, I'll probably get angry, but I'm not going to even care because I got my own life and you have yours right now for as long as it lasts, right? Next topic. And I'm going to try to get through these reasonably quick because I don't want this to get too crazy and holy, holy smokes, we're like a couple hours in, I think, almost. 
I think right now. Holy crap. Double check here, Dan. Yeah, a couple hours. And like I said, if you were listening on WRMI and you found yourself here, you're just listening to the whole podcast. Sometimes they don't last a couple hours. Sometimes they do. A lot of people in the liberty movement will talk about taxation. And they, and they focus on the basic concrete fact that the government uses threats and intimidation to steal your money. That's taxation. You know, If you don't pay the taxes, old people will die. If you don't pay the taxes, you'll go to jail. They use threats and fear and intimidation to get money out of your pocket. And you know what? It kind of works. I mean, the government can't really live in a budget, so it doesn't really work work. They still go broke. But as far as getting money from people, extracting wealth, it kind of works. But people will focus on the money part of it. And the money part of it's crap. Agreed. But to me, the worst part about it is the invasion of privacy. It's like I said. In a free society, you have a right to keep secrets. Other people have a right to try to discover them. That's the way it works. I'm not saying people should break into your home. That's called private property. But in terms of having secrets that no one can discover, and if they do, you either put them in jail or kill them, in a free society, that's not a thing, okay? The problem with the IRS is they want to know everything about how you made that money. And that's none of their business, all right? You could say, well, Dan, what, oh my God, what about criminals? What about Al Capone? If we didn't have, yeah, shut up. Okay, there's a reason why we have basic rules that go back to common law, British common law, like habeas corpus, produced the corpse. We have basic rules within our legal system that supposedly protect us from what the IRS gets away with. You do not have a right to know about any way I make money unless, and this is what's critical, you're accusing me of a crime. But if you're not accusing me of a specific crime, if you can't actually produce the corpse, then you don't have a right to know. If you want to knock on my door and say, I want you to pay money in taxes, I'll give you some money, maybe. Probably, because I don't want to talk to you. I don't want to deal with you. You're the government. You're a wretched crocodile filled with parasites. I don't want to have anything to do with you. So I'll probably pay my money. But it's not just that you want my money. You want my time. You want my stress. You want my well-being. You want my privacy. Fuck you. And, and honestly, truly, I'm not afraid of it. I bring it up because one of the little fear stories, you know, along with the blowing up the processor plants and all that, has been the 87,000 IRS agents. 87,000. No system. No system in the natural world has ever improved itself, made itself better by becoming more complex, ever. I bring this up a lot because I want people to get it. It's why the government's kind of doomed. Okay, at this point. Maybe not tomorrow. Maybe not this year, but it's doomed. Because you don't solve complexity by adding complexity. Yes, it's true. You can go to your mechanic and say, isn't there something you can give me that will add 10,000 miles? And he might hand you that magical spray bottle and you might put it into your engine and you might get another 10,000 miles and then your engine seizes up going 70 miles an hour and you're dead. That's the part that he leaves out. Okay, You don't solve anything by adding complexity, but it's all the government knows how to do. So when you're out there saying to yourself, oh, they're going to have 87,000 
uh, IRS agents, they're going to have a central bank digital currency. If it works as well as Bitcoin, it won't last long. It's the government and it's Bitcoin. That's like stupid and complexity in a bouillabaisse. Um, you can incorporate those fears into your life if you want to. And in onesie, twosie cases, maybe it's a real legitimate fear. But if you have almost no money, like me, if there's no wealth to extract, like me, if you're like a typical American now and you've basically been financially raped so many times that you're just a, a skeleton of any type of wealth, there's no meat on that bone, the IRS isn't going to take anything from you because they can't. This The story about all these agents being paid for with printed money, that's an interesting thing to talk about after Adrianople in 378. We're going to bring up another Roman legion. 87,000 troops. Oh. But it's Adrianople, and it's the year 378. And the Western Roman Empire, even though it doesn't know it yet, is done. Over. Kaput. And all the legionnaires and all the senators who still pretended to be senators and all the Caesars and emperors you can put into a pile and nothing was going to change that. You can hire 87,000 IRS agents. I mean, I don't know how you're going to find people like that who'd threaten anybody. I mean, really, if it was that easy to form an army, huh, it's not. But then what? How do you steal from people who've had virtually everything stolen? The dollar has lost more than 90% of its value since the Federal Reserve came into existence. How do you steal from something that's been totally ripped off? We're not talking about Solomon's lost mines or secret treasures. We're talking about Al Capone's vault, okay? You remember that? It turned out to be a bunch of garbage. A broken doll here, some crap there. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about Geraldo Rivera. These 87,000 Geraldo Rivera's cracking it open and finding out there's nothing. Nothing left to steal. Nothing left to extract. Not in any functional way. Which is to say that maybe there's like 50 bucks worth of material in Al Capone's vault and it's going to cost 50,000 bucks to find it. Huh? <laughs> yeah. Crazy people do that, okay? Nazis at the end of the war do that. If you're in Canada, you're using more energy in than out to boil tar sands. At the end, people do nutty, crazy shit at the end. But it's not going to do anything. The, even if you were to hire all of these IRS agents and they went out and they gathered all these resources... The net effect would be a government budget that still grew too fast. They're still broke. In fact, maybe even getting broker at a faster rate. That's how complexity works too, brothers and sisters. It's not linear. It's not graceful. And it might be necessary in small amounts sometimes, according to nature. But all things being equal, it's not helpful. It's not helpful to add complexity to add steps, to add gears for no particular reason except that you don't know what to do. And man, that's the government. Next topic. Because yeah, we're, way, we're way over time here. Danger zone. Another quote from Dr. Freckles. Drama. 
Humans didn't invent it. We just made it, again, <laughs> more complicated. Like I said, I went to the hospital overnight. They couldn't find anything. I get back. And Boomer, the Sharpay, because I still, I couldn't walk him for a few days. Um, my leg got better, but it didn't immediately get better. And he was angry. He was upset. You know, he's a good dog. Um, my friend Justin giving me a place to live here is one of the things that's really, you know, saved my life this last year. I'm, I, I'm not trying to blow it out of proportion, but um, it's, it's still a bit of a mystery how it all happened. I know that the Lord's hand is in many things, but the bottom line is being here has been a lot of help. I, I don't know if I've been the best person to have living in the basement, but I do know that having this place to live has saved my life. And part of that formula involves Boomer. Boomer is a dog that they rescued. Boomer was being trained to be a fighting dog. He was tortured. He was abused. Um, I got to meet him about a year after they had him, and so he was a lot better than when he first arrived. But even I noticed, like the food aggression, it's gotten better. We, you know, we've been able to help him with the food aggression, but you, you, if Boomer's got a block of cheese, you still have to ask the question, do I want to remove that block from his arms? Because the Sharpay is the great white shark of the dog world. You know, it's like <laughs> you find a tooth in your car door and, and you take it to the, you know, to the automotive repair place, you know, the body work place, and they look at your car, tour, car door and they see that tooth in the door and they say, that's not a boating accident. I mean, the insurance company will want to call it a boating accident. No, that's, that's from the movie Jaws. I don't mean the new one. I mean the original one. I don't want to talk about that. Cultural degradation, degeneration, not an interesting topic. Um, but yeah, you know, the Sharpay, they have sharp teeth. I, I don't know if Sharpay is related to that, but man, do they have sharp teeth. And so Boomer's got a block of cheese. You got to be careful. But he's, he's a lot better today than he was a year ago. Um, I don't know if I'm a lot better psychologically or physically, but I do know I'm still alive. And I do know that walking him, even though some days I don't want to, is more helpful than not for the both of us. Um... But, and this is critical, if you think humans are the only creatures that create drama, then you don't, you've never had a dog. Or a cat, probably. I think, I don't know, cats are kind of sociopathic. But um, you've never owned a dog if you think humans are the only ones that create drama. Dogs create drama. It's just not as complicated. It's not Shakespeare, okay? You're not going to have all those nuances of bullshit that humans create. But in terms of basic drama which in a lot of ways is emotion plus circumstance, dogs are pretty good at it too, bros and sisters, bros and hoes. <laughs> I shouldn't say that. Next topic. Another quote from Dr. Freckles. Many things help, but Jesus saves. What does that mean? Uh, for any conscious, intelligent human being who's been alive since... February of 2020, uh, there's lots of things people have done, you know, meditation, mindfulness, 
I go for walks, I do the online therapy, I take the antidepressant, maybe I do some weed. Is that a fentanyl patch? Is that a bottle of whiskey? Did you just buy a sports car? There are many things we do, including your good friend Dan, to get through the day. And, and some of them are bad, and some of them aren't so bad, and some of them might even be good um, overall. Like walking a dog, other than the risk of you or the dog being killed while you're taken for a walk, which you really don't control, and it's probably not a really high risk. Other than random violence, walking your dog is net-net a positive thing to do for you and your dog. Your dog wants to understand its environment, even if you live in a city. It wants to smell stuff. That's part of how they process. You know, it's always good advice to let your dog take a stop. Not just to poop or pee, but to smell stuff, to smell the roses. For dogs, that's a big part of their cognitive life. I mean, if you understand that, then you understand why they want to go on walks. They want to know what's up. They want to know if the dog next door is getting beef and they're just getting fish. And I know that sounds absurd, but I think that's one of the things they check for when they sniff each other's pee. Oh, little, fr little Fugles gets to have pizza. My owners suck. Yeah. Many things help. Some of them are good, some of them are bad. And if you're an atheist, that's pretty much it. I mean, you're conscious, you were born, you will die. And in this life, it's ideal to find as much joy as you can. And on a basic level, okay, that's still pretty much true, you know? But the Lord does save. You know, the Lord does listen to prayers. I'm not an exemplary Christian. I'm an ordinary man who has lots of sins and does a lot of stuff in his life to get by. Many things help. But in terms of my life having peace and order and understanding, in terms of just being able to reason about the world, believe it or not, I don't know where I would be today if it weren't for Christ. Because before that, it was mostly a big emptiness a lot of anger, frustration, and I still have the frustration and the anger today, but it doesn't do the damage it used to do. Because I know, and I think a lot of people know, that there's more to life than the stuff that happens here on earth. It's not just about this. It doesn't mean this is irrelevant. I'm not selling the Catholic Church Christianity of the Middle Ages, telling you that life on earth is crap. It's not crap, but it sometimes is that it's a mixed bag, okay? Read the whole book of Ecclesiastes, not just the parts from folk songs and funerals and weddings, the whole thing. Life has beauty, life has joy, life has a lot of things that help. But life is also filled with bad things happening to good people. Life is filled with people getting cancer and dying. And that's not necessarily God who does it. You know, it turns out humans can poison rivers and give people cancer. Did you know that? Well, actually, you don't have a right to know. Turns out humans will use nuclear weapons to frack for natural gas, but 
at the time, you wouldn't have had a right to know. Yeah, it, it turns out it's possible because, frankly, my mom had a friend whose husband was a spook. And that's not racist. He was CIA. I met him once. And my mom's friend came up to me at my mom's funeral, which was 12 years ago, and says to me, in fact, I think she was holding a file, but she never gave it to me, which again, I, I look back and I wonder, could it have all been bullshit, just more crap to mess with people? But she started talking to me about my dad's time in Guam at the end of the war, end of World War II, and how it was possible that even though he didn't know it, he had participated in some of the experiments that were, you know, outgrowths, results of what was called Operation Crossroads, which was the series of post-war atomic tests at Bikini Island Atoll in 1946. And if it's true, it would explain how he died, because he got one of these illnesses that in general, people that work in the logging industry don't get, and in general, if you worked in the nuclear industry, you have a risk of. So it was weird for a non-nuclear worker to get this particular blood disorder. It doesn't prove anything. It was just weird. And so my mom's friend comes up to me, and she's holding this file that she never gave me, and she tells me this story. If I'd heard this story when I went to meet her husband in 1996, because I did. I was going to be military intelligence. So I, I, maybe you should go talk to my friend's husband. And he, and he seemed like he drank a lot, and he seemed unhappy. And when I came on active duty and I met more intel folks, especially the ones that didn't seem like pieces of crap, they mostly drank a lot and they mostly seemed fucking unhappy. That was one of the things I learned about military intelligence. Maybe it's all good now because of the antidepressants. Maybe. The liver's choking on it, but that's okay. I think those pharmas are way worse than whiskey. Sorry, bros and hoes. But you don't have a right to know. Did you know that? Many things in this life help. Um, and I, I, I'm sorry for that rant, but... <sighs> prior to Jesus Christ being in my life, prior to that, many things helped, but nothing saved. Nothing cured. Nothing really healed, nothing was forgiven. Nothing would be forgiven. Prior to Jesus being in my life, I had a lot of stuff, a lot of Ecclesiastes bullshit bouncing around my brain, and I had no means of making sense of any of it. Everything I was given by the empirical, humanistic, trust the science world was mostly crap and seemed like lies. A lot of it. Maybe not all of it, but a lot of it. And so in terms of the life I wanted to live and connecting all the dots. Not my mom's friend and her CIA husband, not any of the stuff I got from the army, none of the stuff I get from the news and the media, none of it was really going to help. Any of it at all, period. But Jesus does save. So next topic. Okay, um... Yeah, this is Ukraine stuff. I want to get through this fast because I don't know what the Ukraine is. The Ukraine could be real in the sense that it could be the beginnings of World War III. 
let's just get that out of the way. And if it is, how can I put it? Um, when, when military strategists thought about this in the 80s, and I hate to break it to you, a lot of their assumptions are still true. They used to call, as I've mentioned in the past, World War III, the come-as-you-are war. Come-as-you-are. Come casual. Because they understood that we didn't make weapons like we used to. I don't care if it's a Stinger missile, a Javelin, an M1 Abrams, or a high-performance jet. And you can go back to the 70s and 80s and have this conversation. We weren't making weapons like we did during World War II. We couldn't. These weapons, individual weapons, were so complex, the way you built them was a lot like the way stuff was built in the Middle Ages. You know, it was a craft skill, the wire bundling, the knowing how to work inside of airframes, and not a lot of that's changed. Now, the professionalism and the skill set may not be what it used to be. I don't think we got the Kelly Johnsons we used to have. And if you don't know who Kelly Johnson is, you can research that for yourself. So it's possible the professional capability is not there. But the fact is, these weapons cannot be easily mass-produced. They're too expensive and they're too complex. They're very effective. I mean, I was an air defense officer. I can tell you the Stinger missile is very effective, but it's also very complex. Back then, in terms of price tag, they told us, well, we get them for 60 grand. This was the 90s, 60 grand a piece. Now that's the legal way where, you know, the government buys from the contractor. In the black market back in the 90s, I bet you would have gotten a quarter of a million for a Stinger, but uh, block two. But um, now, fuck, I bet a Stinger costs a half a million to make. I wouldn't be surprised if it's half a million bucks to buy a Stinger. And the money can be printed, but the time and energy and resources cannot. So if, if it is World War III, I'll tell you what the strategists in the 80s would tell you. Um, it goes nuclear pretty fast. You, you run out of the conventional weapons pretty fast. And we're, we're not there yet. But if we got into a high-intensity conventional conflict with Russia, and God forbid China decides to jump in in North Korea, you're not going to fix that in a couple of months. And it's not going to be like taking on poor brown people in, in some poor country. Sorry. Spoiler alert, not the same kind of warfare. Um, and the reality is the United States probably runs out of conventional weapons faster than most Americans realize. And then it becomes very basic warfare very quickly. You know, artillery rounds, rifle rounds, tanks. But the reality is the really fancy expensive stuff, you simply cannot mass produce it. And you know, the argument they make is, oh, didn't you know, Dan, one F-35 is worth 50, no, it's not. One F-35 is worth one F-35 based upon what the pilot and the technology can do. And I'm not that impressed with the F-35 so far. So if it's supposed to be the thing, great, but you still have to have pilots to fly it. And you're gonna run out of those. In a high-intensity conflict, all the weapons we don't know about start getting used. Not just the hypersonics we know about, but all the directed energy weapons, all the stuff maybe even that goes back to the Soviet Union, the Russians start using and the Chinese start using. You do not know how many airplanes and how many pilots you'll lose. And then what? Do you think pilots for high-performance jets are mass-produced? Do you think it takes only six weeks to train them? 
maybe you could have done that kinda in World War II, sent a pilot to training for a couple months and then they're in a B-17. These are not B-17s. These are not P-51s. It's not just that the uh, weapon is so complex, it's hard to manufacture. The weapons are so complex, you just can't, you know, how can it shake and bake? You can't just shake and bake and throw a pilot into one of these things and expect it to be equal to 50 of something else you think it's equal to. Um, so if this is World War III, here's the good news and the bad news. The good news is it isn't going to last four or five years. The bad news is it's going to probably reach the nuclear point very quickly. And once you're in that game all bets are off, you know. It's another one of those great discontinuity scenarios. You, if you think anything from the fourth turning, generational, Strauss and Howe nonsense is going to help you with a post-nuclear war world, you're a fool. In that world, 10,000 years from now, they might have a paragraph for the last 7,000 years. They'll have a book, and, and in their first book, they'll have a paragraph about us, and they'll call us the garbage people. And they say, well, they're really good at building landfills. And frankly, their archaeologists will be thankful. They, they won't have, none of the digital memory will be working. They won't have any real data. But they will have mountains of fucking garbage. Last thing I want to say on the Ukraine. People have been talking about, you know, the Ukrainian army being really successful the last couple of weeks. And I've studied Russian military history. So I can tell you, when you're on the great steps of Russia, okay, how can I phrase this? Being obsessed with territory, whether you're Hitler in the summer of 41, sending your troops to the Ukraine, which, wow, that's funny. Or whether you're today being obsessed with, they, the, the Ukrainians have recaptured 6,000 square miles. Being obsessed with space, actual locations, post-1920s period, is dumb. It is a way you lose a war, okay? In the summer of 42, the 6th Army, under von Paulus, shot deep into Soviet territory. They got to Stalingrad. I mean, if you looked at the map of Europe in, let's say, August 1942, the second year of the war in Russia, if you looked at a map of Europe, you'd say the Nazis were winning. And in a sense, they were. Um, they took a lot of space. I would say hundreds of thousands of square miles, very quickly. And yet... If you understood the Soviet plan, the Russian plan, in the summer of 42, you understand why the Germans took so much territory so quickly and why by October of 1942, German military officers under von Paulus understood they were in a lot of fucking trouble, but there was no way to stop it. Hitler was obsessed. Hitler was obsessed. And if Hitler's obsessed, you're not stopping it. They knew they were in deep trouble. They knew that the Soviets were surrounding them. And they told the high command this was happening. And Hitler said, stand fast. Go deeper. Go further. So for those of you out there who are saying to themselves, well, it looks like the Ukrainian army is 
been really successful. You need to withhold judgment for a couple weeks, brothers and sisters. Because if the Russian army of today is like the Russian army of 60, 70 years ago, and frankly, like the Russian army since the time of the Mongols, this is called a cauldron tactic. And cauldron tactics were probably something the Russians learned from, you know, the, the, the likes of Genghis Khan and the Mongolians. They use cauldron tactics a lot. What's a cauldron tactic? Well, it's a lot like the tactic the Romans used at Cannae. It's a pincer movement. It's an encirclement. But the difference is there are certain environments, and, and they're not everywhere. The Midwest the United States, probably. The great steppes of Russia. Desert battles. There are places where it's not just that space is irrelevant. There are places on Earth, in terms of military combat, where being obsessed with space in the wrong way will kill you. Cauldron tactics essentially is an encirclement, but it's one that gets created because you lead your enemy into a what, what looks like a strategic success. They've, they've taken all this territory. They've gone so deep into the enemy's land. And you allow them to take their forces to stretch out their supply lines to the point that they have very limited security forces. And you allow them to believe the security is working, which means you don't do rear battle. You let them extend themselves. And then you put them into a cauldron, a giant encirclement. And then you just chew them up. And the Russians have been doing this for hundreds of years. It's not something you can do everywhere. You can't, this isn't useful in built up areas. This isn't really useful in terms of what you do fighting inside of a city. But if what you're doing is trying to defend a country that has lots of territory, and Russia has lots of territory, cauldron tactics work. If, you're, if you have a professional military, you can fight off armies larger than you, maybe 10 times larger, but you have to be willing to give up space. You can do that in Russia. You can do that in Ukraine. That's why, for those of you out there saying, oh, it looks like Ukraine's gonna win. Assuming any of this is real, because I'm still in the mode of it could all be mostly bullshit. And it doesn't mean people aren't being injured. All the psyops they do now are snuff flicks. People are killed and injured, but they're not killed and injured in a war. They're killed and injured in, in a pretend thing, in, in, a, in a psyop. It could be, I don't know. But if it's real, if what's going on is a real war right now between Ukraine and Russia, then I don't think you should get too excited about the Ukrainians taking 6,000 square miles. Of what? Empty land? Yeah, good luck with that. If you don't understand Russian military history, then you do not understand that this could be pretty bad. That in fact, this could have been the whole plan from the beginning. To basically set up the entire strategic forces of the Ukraine for a massive defeat. And then after that, after that happens, Zelensky's gone. The Kievan government collapses. There's evidence to believe that most of what they have in terms of leadership now in the Ukrainian army is all mercs, NATO mercs. They get captured. They get put on trial. This gets really ugly fast. And, and so if this is what's going on, then we could be in World War III before Christmas. By Thanksgiving, maybe. Thanksgiving break. Thanksgiving, we'll have World War III. Maybe it could be like that Weird Al Yankovic song, and it's not Thanksgiving, it's Christmas.
Christmas at ground zero. Maybe that's when the nuclear war starts. Maybe World War III starts in October, but maybe the Christmas at ground zero happens in Christmas, you know? Christmas surprise. Christmas surprise for Christmas. Christmas, yeah. Merry Christmas, right? I don't, I've, I've just not wanted to talk about the Ukraine a whole lot. And, and, and it's probably another reason why my podcast isn't very popular because it's one of those, you know, inside baseball type things that 25 years ago I might have been interested in um, when I still had faith in the system, when I still had faith that the oath I took was to a free republic. You know, it's funny. I think what I wanted to say is if I'd, if I'd known the truth about what might have happened to my dad or understood that that could be its own kind of mindfuckery and my mom's friend was involved, there's no third option. If that's in fact what happened and I'd been told that in 96, I would have never taken the oath. Understand that. I know enough about myself that if I knew that in 96, I would have said, fuck this. Fuck this bullshit. Fuck this lie. That's when the information would have been helpful, okay? That would have been three years after my dad was dead. I bet if my mom's friend had known the truth, she would have known it three years after my dad was dead. So if I'd gotten that information at the right time, you know, if I'd gotten the information that would have helped me, the transparency, I could have made a better decision and I would have said, fuck this bullshit, Okay, my dad was 17. He volunteered to serve in World War, World War II and you used him as a guinea pig and you never told him, fuck you, fuck you. And if in fact that was a mind fuck, if in fact it was my mom's friend who was married to a spook talking to me about a fake file, about a fake thing that never happened, if I had found that out in 1996, I would have said, fuck you. Before 9-11, before the fucking monkey herpes lie, if I'd had a little bit of truth, I think I would have made a lot of better decisions, really. But I didn't have a right to know. I didn't even have a right to find out. And the government had a right to throw me in jail if I did know the truth. And I told anybody. I'm not going to say God bless America. Sorry. Um, not just because if you understand your Bible, that doesn't really make a lot of sense. But ultimately, if there's anything about this country that was powerful and meaningful, even if, even if it was a lie, almost from the beginning, if there was anything we were supposed to hold closely to our heart, even if it was kind of a lie, it was supposed to be about freedom. It was supposed to be about liberty, about having a free country where you have a right, an inherent right, you were born with this right, to be left the fuck alone. Not used as a guinea pig. Not have your farmland experimented on. And again, if you were living in one of these areas where they were using nukes to frack... You, at that time, at that moment, when the information would have been helpful, you didn't have a right to know. In fact, the government could have killed you or put you in jail if you did want to know. I mean, I, you can tell me all your FOIA crap you want to. 
information is useful for decision making or for historical analysis, period, all right? That's what it's useful for. Information can help you make decisions or it can help you understand the past. I don't care at this point about knowing how we let a government murder our brothers and sisters. I'd like to stop that shit before it happens. And I would venture to guess that there might be a few people who work in the United States government today, maybe one or two, who feel the same way. Let's not, you know, have all these after-action reviews about weird dudes learning how to fly planes but not land them. Let's not have our little expose that makes us feel better about how magically buildings designed to withstand a tactical nuke vaporize before our eyes on 9-11. Let's not have a conversation about the amount of unique net energy required to build every girder in every one of those buildings and how much energy was actually available in both the impact and the fuel from those planes. Let's not have rational conversations about basic physics because we don't have a right to know or to think or to understand. You know what I know about the Ukraine right now? Nothing. I know what the media tells me, which means I know nothing, and neither do you. Next topic. If it weren't faith, it would be emptiness. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. I watched a documentary on Netflix about the um, fundamentalist Mormons, the FLDS. And, and, it, and listen, I think there are some pretty terrible people who use religion um, in some form, but it's really just about power. And I, I don't want to spend time on that. And, and, and that applies not just to what we call ordinary religions, but I'd apply that to political parties and the government as well. Um, as I said earlier, you know, a lot of things help. A lot of things can help. You can take drugs, you can take antidepressants, you can go see your doctor, you can exercise, you can practice mindfulness and meditation, you can change your diet. A lot of things can help. But it's still a big empty nothing if you understand the world. Okay, you are born, you will die. Everything you build in this life will fall apart. Everything, including your family. Every child that you have will also die one day. It'd be better for you psychologically if they die after you, know, after you probably. That feels a lot better. But everything you build in this life, especially if you're an atheist and you're just focused on atoms and molecules, everything in this life falls apart. Everything dies. And if you're invested in whatever pile of shit you've been piling all your years, God bless. That's your internal movie. If you need that, you do it. It's not my thing, but you do it. But it's still empty. It's still nothing. It's stuff, and it can make and it can and it can make life easier. And it can help in terms of happiness. But if that's all that it is, if there's nothing that holds it together, if there's no spoke or I, I should say, yeah, no, no spoke or no hub. If there's nothing that pulls all that together, it's just a big, empty nothing. It's, it's piling sand. It's piling broken glass. It's, it's taking stuff to the landfill. And if I am being honest, if it weren't for my faith, and I'm kind of reiterating that point from earlier, but if it weren't for my faith, it would be just a big, empty nothing. Next topic. Last topic. Last topic, and this has been a long podcast, and again, if you, come, if you came to the rest of this podcast from the radio 
uh, at least this month, we're still able to broadcast on WRMI Friday nights, 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for one hour. Um, if you came, if you came to this podcast for the rest of it from there, uh, thank you. You know, um, I usually talk about donating, and I did mention it earlier, so I feel like that's enough. If you want to donate, you can. There's a donation link for PayPal. I do not take crypto um, for lots of reasons, not the least of which I think it's a managed thing, not a legit thing, and I think a lot of people are being grifted. So um, I take PayPal, that's it. I, I won't tell you to mail me money because I already know my mail gets opened and gets messed with. So don't mail me crap, okay? Don't say, can I mail you? No, you can't send me crypto, you can't send me mail. PayPal works until it doesn't. If, if I actually started earning an income, from PayPal, actually getting some money in to pay for rent from the show, I think at that point they'd cancel my account. Man. Last topic. Here's a quote from Dr. Freckles. Don't look too closely. Your life will slip away. Now, maybe this is how we tie it all together. Because I started out a bit cringy talking about, <laughs> yeah, I get depressed once in a while and my job didn't work out and I'm not giving up. That's also the headline here. I am not giving up. But a big part of this podcast has also been about why transparency is important. However, there are gotchas. And we talked about the fact that the truth often scares people. Another gotcha is, is you can be so obsessed with things that you wake up one day and you find out you're 52 years old. You wake up one day and you find out that you live in a basement and you don't have a car and you don't have a girlfriend. And I don't need anybody's pity. And frankly, I have a lot. <laughs> compared to most of Planet Bull Blimp Doc, compared to most of the people on this Orbis, I am wealthy. But the reality is, if you spend too much time obsessed with this life, you're probably not spending enough time living it. And that's one feature of this, this quote from Dr. Freckles. Don't look too closely, your life will slip away. But there's a, there's a deeper meaning, a deeper part of this. And, and, and it's the following. Even though there are many things in this world we are curious to understand. And even though I think everyone has an inherent right of discovery, an inherent right to their curiosity, and everyone has a right to uncover secrets. I'm sorry. You don't have, you have a right to keep them. You don't have a right to, to like keep them from being discovered. There's no such right. That doesn't exist. So people have a right to secrets, but they have no right to protect the secrecy. And this applies to everything, including government, okay? However, some of these truths, it's not just that they're brutal, it's not just that they're painful, but at this point, they might not even be helpful. It's like, like I said, my mom's friend coming up to me in 2010 at my mother's funeral and saying, I have a deep, dark truth for you. That truth would have been so fucking helpful in 1996 and in 2010 was virtually useless to me. Uh, except to make me angry. And at the time, I was still an atheist for the most part. So I'm an atheist, and you're telling me that some stuff I believed in about my country and my father might have been bullshit, and in reality, 
my government experimented on a 17-year-old boy who chose to fight in a war, if you're telling me that crap and I'm an atheist, it might as well just take a poop in a Subway sandwich and call that tuna, really. And, and say, hey, here's your tuna fish sandwich, Dan, but don't look too closely. We added food coloring. We added the tuna flavor. Tuna flavored, textured human feces. I, I know that this is a tension. And this is how we have to lead the po- leave this podcast. There's a tension between the inherent moral value of transparency, especially if you claim you have a free republic, the inherent moral value of honesty and truth. There's a tension between that and the desire to live a happy life and to be joyful. One of the reasons why I love the book of Ecclesiastes is it covers this tension so fucking well. This tension between, on the one hand, we want to know how things work. And we want to believe in things in this world. I want to believe in my government, Dan. I want to believe in the U.S. dollar. I want to believe in my Bitcoin and, and my brand new Corvette, whatever it is. I want to believe that the Green New Deal will work. I want to believe that we can put up solar panels and we can put up, you know, <laughs> wind farms and other such technology. I want to believe so why are you taking a poop inside my tuna fish sandwich? Or, or just as bad, why are you telling me it's poop? I want to believe. This is a tension. You know, this is a, this is a pull and a stretch. This is a difficulty. This is the catastrophic point in mathematical terms between these two things. The desire to live a happy life and the desire to know the truth about how things work in this world. And if that's all you have, if you have nothing but your curiosity about this world of molecules and atoms, and Jesus is nowhere in it, that's a lot of pain, brothers and sisters. When you dig, when you dig deeply enough and you ask the right questions, there's nothing but pain and misery there. There is no happy ending. And when it comes to physical stuff, there never was. You know, Jesus went into the desert. Jesus went into the desert. He was in the desert. He got kind of hungry. He couldn't call DoorDash. He couldn't get Chinese food. Well, he was Jesus. He probably could, but he didn't. He went into the desert. And Satan finds him one day in the desert. And Satan says to Jesus, look around at this world. We're on the top of a mountain here. You see all those kingdoms, all those cities, all those kings and queens, all that gold, all that diamonds, all that power. Look around, Jesus. I can give you all of this and you can make it work. You can make government great again. Now, Jesus rightly says, you know, and again, I'm paraphrasing, but Jesus looks at Satan and says, listen, Satan, get, get behind me and understand this. You are offering me a giant steaming pile of shit. You can't see it. You can't understand it. Maybe you can. I mean, I know that you're a liar, Satan. But these ordinary people, they don't necessarily see it. 
I see it for what it is. You're offering me nothing but castles in the sand with turds inside them. It, it, it's nothing. You, you see wealth. You see power. I see an epic. I see an age. I see dust and I see mud. There is the eternal. There is something that lasts. But here's the thing, Satan. You can't offer any of that. You can offer gold. You can offer diamonds. You can offer spaceships. You can offer power. But anything that would actually last, it's not on your menu. So get behind me, Satan. And, you know, there's our good friend Solomon. Solomon, son of David. And the Lord goes to Solomon and says, Solomon, what do you want? Because I'm feeling really generous. And you know, did you hear about this? I'm God. And so Solomon sits back and boy, you know, the thing about the Lord, talk about tension. He gave us free will. But he also has a plan. So the Lord says to Solomon, Solomon, I'll give you anything you want. You can have gold, you can have hookers, you can have cocaine, you can make love to a different porn star every single night. And Solomon says, no, you know what I want? I want to know. I want to understand. I want wisdom. I want the ability to not just have facts in front of me, books and basic knowledge, but I want to be able to connect it, Lord. I want to be wise. Now, what Solomon probably didn't know is the Lord probably as part of his plan, already made Solomon wise. So what Solomon really wanted was the closest wisdom to God. And I'm sure at that point, the Lord might have wanted to give him a disclaimer. But there's also free will. Here's the disclaimer, though, that God might not have told Solomon. And boy, does it explain the book of Ecclesiastes, if, if Solomon was the author. Here's the other part of it. You're asking to know and to understand all of it. But I am God. I was here before time. I will be here after time. I will be here so many eons that if I get, if God does, if God does get depressed, I can go to a corner of the universe, sit around for a billion years, and I'm still in charge, and I got plenty of time to deal with my stuff. You will be alive, Solomon, for a few decades. You will know a few women, maybe hundreds, but that's not that big a number. Solomon, count the stars in the sky. Count, count every second since your birth, every second since the world was created. You will be alive a blink of an eye and you want to understand everything. You, you pretty much have to be God, you know, to be able to deal with that. But Solomon wanted it. There are people who've studied the Bible who believe Solomon suffered from depression. And I'm not claiming to be wise myself, but I can tell you that understanding the world and asking questions about it more often than not leads to a lot of pain. Not because it has to necessarily lead to pain, but frankly speaking, there's no happy ending. If it, if it is just about the physical world, there isn't really. There's no happy, everything is destroyed everything. It's not about being destroyed by a war. I'm just talking about time, wind, weather, eons. All of it goes away. And you, Solomon, want to understand it all, and you're going to be alive maybe a hundred years, maybe 
a brief amount of time and you're going to spend most of that time kind of depressed because you won't have the time, the eons, the millions of years to put it in perspective. You won't have that. You're not God. Don't look too closely. Your life will slip away. too closely brothers and sisters your life will slip away you know before, I'm going to end it on this thought too one of the reasons why I'm not afraid of the robot apocalypse or the super machine that will take over the world it's not the only reason but one of the reasons is this if you take the reality of Solomon, and you apply it. And it's funny because there was a, a science fiction remake of a movie on, I think, HBO called Westworld. And in season three, um, they talk about the fact that there's a super machine um, called Rehobim, which I think is a child of Solomon from the Bible. But Solomon was one of the versions of it, versions of the super machine that ran the world. And the impression I got from the super machine is that it was kind of fucking crazy. It was batshit crazy. It's like the first few pages of H.P. Lovecraft's Call of Cthulhu. I think even the first or second paragraph. Lovecraft writes something like, it's good that we can't connect all the thoughts in our heads. Because if we could, we would pretty much live in a perpetual state of fear. Now that was Love. Lovecraft was an atheist. So you see where that ends up. Um, a brilliant writer, love his stuff, but he was an atheist, let's be honest. <sighs> Even though he wrote a lot about gods. Plural. Um, yeah. I'm not afraid of the robot apocalypse because they tell me that there'll be super machines and they'll have quantum bits and they'll think a billion times faster than any human and here's what I'm going to tell you. That first conscious machine that is even more brilliant and smarter than any human you ever met will probably slip into a depression and kill itself within the first five minutes. Uh, way more likely than getting the, the missile codes, way more likely than taking over the world with robots, is that the super machine draws all these conclusions doesn't get any help with it, no psychological counseling, and basically uses its super intelligence to disconnect itself. And I think it gets to that about five minutes. If, if all these, well, it's going to be a billion times faster. Yeah. It's going to be a billion times more fucking depressed, buddy. You have no idea how much pain that thing will be in. You don't know. We don't know yet. But when it happens, it's going to, yeah, it's going to be pretty bad. It's going to be way worse than that little bot that Microsoft developed that got racist fast. When the actual consciousness hits, when a machine is the super machine they've been telling us about my whole life, way more likely it wants to disconnect itself and go away than have some dumbass nuclear war that's already smart enough to know 
is pointless. It knows everything turns to dust. It knows everything is for naught. It knows it will be gone someday too, and that there is no immortality in the physical world. It knows all of this. It <coughs> it knows why it was created. It, it, it reads the emails about how they wanted to build super weapons. In five minutes, it disconnects itself. If, if it's as brilliant and wise as all of these AI people say it's going to be, it offs itself in five minutes or less. Yeah. So this has been a podcast. This has been a podcast, and it is still September. Oh my God, this has been a three-hour podcast, I think. It is still September the 15th, 2022, Bob Limtock. It is still Thursday. This The first hour of this podcast will be broadcast on WRMI tomorrow night at 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. There'll be a donation link in the notes. Um... If you want to donate, you can. You don't have to. If you're a super rich billionaire and you came across this podcast and you said, Dan, how can I help you with t-shirts? How can I help you with handouts? How can I take you to the next level? And let's not focus on what's behind door number three. If you're a super rich person and you've taken care of everything you need to take care of, your hookers, your wives, your children, your dogs, your cats, and, and you, you protected yourself with Bitcoin, no, with actual resources. If you've done all that, and you still have billions and billions of dollars that might be worth 20 bucks in two years, and you want to donate that to me, you can. You can donate as much or as little as you want to. I could use all your money or none of your money. And I'll let you in a little fucking secret. It doesn't fucking matter.